Hello and welcome back to the 831 podcast. It's been a while, we've been away. Um, I've been busy, you've been busy. That's the way, it's just the way it goes sometimes. Um, but it is really good to be back. Uh, quick shout outs, let's get them done. Trojan Fitness Nutrition, Trojan Fitness Gym in Bristol. Long term sponsors of the podcast, forever will be. EJ Hair Clinic, uh, my scalp micropigmentation. I have had my hair tattooed in because obviously I'm bald, I guess. Um, but Emma does amazing work. Honestly, like look her up, EJ Hair Clinic. If you're out, if you're interested, let her know that you listen to the podcast or you know me, and you will be looked after. She's a great friend, not just great at her job. Um, Sweatbox Gym, Pedro Bessa BJJ. Ridgeway Family Fitness, Olympians MMA, look all those guys up, uh, honestly, anyone I follow, follow, hit me up if you know anybody who would like to be considered as a sponsor on here, or if you have anybody who would make a good guest, episode 50, the big five zero. Andy Sledge, so Sledge is to UK MMA what Bruce Buff Buffer is to the UFC, he is for me the voice of UK MMA, and has been an MC since the early days of UK MMA, which we touch on during this. He's a great guy. He's a good friend. I really enjoy him on social media. And we have lots of fun when we do get together. Um, Yeah, he's also the guy who sent me that really horrible one chip challenge thing during my advent calendar. So I'm not going to big him up too much now, actually. Uh, But this was a great podcast. One of the most fun I've had. We go places where we never thought we'd end up and it's not a podcast that maybe went in the avenue that I thought it was going to but that's the great thing about these we just chat right it did however deliver and it was lots of fun and I'm sure you're going to love it and it was the perfect one to come back with so this is episode 50 this is Andy Sledge and we will catch up with each other again soon Okay, Sledge, we are in. Thanks very much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, mate. My pleasure. So, I, well, I, I actually owe you one because you were kind enough to do my podcasting. That fucking, that must seem, I mean, that what's that, nearly two years ago now, wasn't it? That's right. It's a, it's a weird one because this, like, you're a guest I've been thinking about for a long time just because, A, we get on well um, and you're... You sit very much with, with all of my things that I, um, what I align with and what I think about. You either sit with them, or if you're sort of off of them or against them, you're still very middle of the road. And quite, so I was like, look, we get on really well. We've known each other a while. It'd be a laugh. So then I did yours, which was quality, and it just time just flies by, right? Mate, like that's. Do you know what? It's it's weird now. Like I, in my head, I look at things. It's like was that was that before or after lockdown? That's like the that's how you judge when shit happened. Was it yeah. before or after lockdown? And then you, you know, like oh, it was after. And then was it the first? Was it the second? Was it the you know? And it just and it just sort of like it's just melted into one. I mean, th- those first that those first six months, right? So from when because so I remember because it was because I, I was I was training for that boxing match. Mm-hmm. And the boxing match was supposed to be end of March. Like 31st of March or whatever, right? And then so like 15th of March, around like 14th, 15th of March, my last sparring session, right? And I just fucking walks into a punch off and beast in the gym, smashes me eye socket to add to absolute bits. And um, and that was when it was all like 
ooh, disease this, disease that, we had this, we had that. And then, so I, the next day, I've had to go to A&E, right? And, and so I, I hurt myself on the Monday, on the Sunday. So Monday morning, I've got up and I've thought, I've got to go to A&E. And I did, like, this was like, we no one knew what was actually happening. I thought it was going to be like the zombie apocalypse down in A&E. So I've turned up with rubber gloves on, masks and fucking everything, like that. And I've walked it, and like, obviously, I've got one of my fucking eyes is down here, and it's like, you know, so I've like shattered the the bottom of my eye socket, right? Yeah. And so my eye has gone down like that. So literally, I've got one eye here and my normal eye like that, right? And so I've, I've like I've like I've driven down to fucking A and E like that, right? And um and I've got there, and I've like and I, like I say, I was expecting dead bodies everywhere, fucking hazmat suits, you know, like. 2319, we've got a 23, like that kind of shit, right? <laughs> yeah, outbreak stop. Walk in, nothing. <laughs> Place is empty. And I'm like, like I say, rubber gloves, mask, fucking like this, you know, like big pointy stick, like fucking. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, it was nothing. And I was like, what the fuck, man, that's weird. And so obviously the beauty about it was I got seen straight away. So I was straight in, got, got straight in, Doctor's looked at me and he's gone, yeah, you need a scan, mate. So he sent me for a CAT scan. And then I've gone up to the eye clinic. And the, and the doctor's gone, yeah, you have several fractures of your eye socket. And I was just like, oh, for fuck's sake. You know what I mean? For, you know, so what was it? I was 43. You know, 43, like 42, 43 years old. Fucking getting in a boxing ring with a 27-year-old fucking 100-kilo yeah. monster. And there's me thinking I'm still good at what... Like, I was never any good when I was in my 20s, let alone thinking <laughs> I can still do it when I'm in my 40s. And um, and so, yeah, and then so the doctor's gone, like, look, mate, you need a fucking operation. And um, so, like, with the, with the like a following week, I was up the John Radcliffe in Oxford getting, me, getting a titanium plate put in the bottom of my eye socket. And... Um, and then I come out the hospital and they were like, you're not allowed to leave the house anymore. And I was like, oh, well. And so obviously I'd been on a diet and everything and I'd been training really hard. And I was just like, fuck it, let's eat donuts then. And then um, yeah, the next six course. months, next six months, I just went, Whoa! but yeah, that first six months, man, it just did like, you know, getting up and doing the same, you know, just getting up in the morning, watching the telly, doing fuck all. Yeah. You know what I mean? That was it. Yeah, like I, I often think now, where we're at now, must be like post-war syndrome. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, like imagine a massive war has just happened. Every day you're hearing about this big war. You're not going out, so you're not actually seeing the big war for yourself. But you know there's damage here, and you know that there's all the news is saying that there's this war going on. So you're trying to shelter and protect yourself from it. Then it's just like, well, the war's sort of over now. So everyone's like, oh, so... Do we go back to normal? Do we not? Like what the? Yeah. So you only gauge where we're at by pre or post lockdown. It is pr like pretty surreal. I mean, I loved it. People say to me all the time about lockdown. It's frustrating because you couldn't. I mean, I couldn't go to the gym. I couldn't teach. Couldn't roll. Couldn't do all that. But at the same time, mate, I got my book written. I was doing quizzes. I was doing podcasts. Yeah, the, I was like, was the one, bro. But you, <laughs> you're an outdoor guy anyway. You know, you were saying, you know, you were flying your eagle and, and yeah. Oh, and all of that and so yeah i mean to be honest you know i'm you know i try my very very best to be as active as i can um but you know at heart i am still a real like you know i spent you know so i, I mean i'm sure that obviously you know i'm uh, i don't know so 
you know, your listeners won't know my backstory. The fact that I'm uh, I'm in recovery and I, I spent a lot of years smoking a lot of weed. Um, so, um, you know, for 20 years of my life, I used to smoke weed and sit on the sofa and watch the telly. You know, so for me to be to sit on the sofa and watch the telly, that was like just fucking. I might as well be back fucking. Uh, I might as well be back in the old days. Yes. But, uh, yeah, I am. I I am just a lazy TV junkie at heart. You know. So for me, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't really that much of a problem. But Yeah, I, I, obviously, but you're one of those people as well who find shit to do. You're not like a lazy guy just flicking through oh, the TV. No, no, no. You'll think, oh, I could do this. Or if there's a quiz going on, like, I'll get on that. I'll do, like, there are people who will literally lay on the sofa and do nothing. Like, I can't, yeah. even when I'm ill, I'm like, oh, well, I could vacuum the front room or I could do, like, you know, i got to be bed-banged to not do anything. And you, like, you've always struck me as the same sort of person, you know, like, I'm doing nothing because I'm sat watching TV, but I couldn't literally do nothing, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, as we said, you know, you did my podcast, which was The Oil Check. Again, I, 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 I sort of, that, that sort of came to a close, really, like, after lockdown finished. Um, it was more of a lockdown project. But then, uh, and then my other, my other lockdown project was I did my Ovidazine pet, um, you know, Vivi's Impact uh, quiz uh, uh, podcast, and again, that was while I was while I was working while I was so I was running my own business for a while, um, and obviously so I had more free time, and um, and then unfortunately I had to then go back and start working for the you know working for the man again, and uh, suckling on that corporate teat, <laughs> and um, and you know I'm back working for, you know 40, 50 hours a week for a you know a big company now. And so I just, you know, to do that, to do an episode of that podcast would normally take me, you know, eight to 10 hours to prepare it and, you know, dad and everything like that. And then it went. And then so we stopped doing it. And everyone's like, why have you stopped doing it? And I'm like, well, unfortunately, I do have to put food on the table. You know what I mean? But, I mean, everyone, so everyone assumes a podcaster is like uh, Joe Rogan or Russell Brand or but it's. I mean, it's so hard for me to, I haven't done one for a few months now, and I've been doing, you, you've seen, I popped like a little 10 minute, my opinion on this yeah, yeah. on Facebook, and then last night I did one, uh, which might become a new a new feature, just like a live at five thing, just, but that was just because of the current situation with politics, so I put that out, and I just talked to camera, people put up questions if they want to, because it's easier, just a quick 10 minutes here, 30 minutes here, but this is my this is my pleasure. If I could do something, the podcast and sitting down and talking to someone, unscripted, easy chat, boom. But to put together what you were putting together with the Alfida Zane again, like, because I, I mean, I watch it. I watch it a lot when it's on my. T- I, I've got box set. I never put the box set on, but it's on everyone's box set. Everyone's got Amazon and stuff, haven't they? But uh, like, it comes on TV like on yesterday or something. Or whatever yeah, 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 yeah. And I always watch it. It's usually a double episode, so I'll always re-watch it. But you're specifically watching episodes to break down the episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You and you've got to you sort of transcribe the whole episode. That's what yeah. takes the time. So you got to listen. You know, you so I put it on the co- like I have it on the computer, and so your face on the your finger on the space bar. So you'd listen to a line, pause, write it down, you know, and, and just that was it. And, it, you know, and there was for the first couple of series, there was a, there was a website that had a lot of it already transcribed. It was called Wiki Quotes. So about 25 percent of the episode was already transcribed on this thing. So I could go on there, copy and paste that and download it. And then that would that would, you know, that would save me, you know, two hours of uh, uh, two, three hours of, uh, of writing. And then so I've got to do the rest. And then then we got to season three. The episodes are longer. 
the 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 transcription isn't available online. And so, you know, it's taken eight hours to transcribe an episode. And then, like I say, and then I had to go back and start work again. And it was a bit of a, I was, a, you know, I loved it. And we had a bit of a cult following. You know, I mean, we were getting like, what, 200, 300, you know, uh, listeners, a, listeners a week. It's not like, you know, I don't think, like you say, I don't think Joe Rogan was shitting himself. You know what I mean? uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, we had our little fan base and that, and it was good. Uh, but, yeah, just a shame that, I mean, it, it was a lot of hard work for for nothing, and you know, when 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 you when you're not at, when you're not doing a full time job and you're doing it to entertain yourself, that's one thing. But when you when you're back working full time and then you've got to do it on top of, and then you know, training three four times a week, you know, got me kid, got me girlfriend, you know, and just you know, there's only so many hours in a week, isn't it? And what you were then, what you were enjoying doing becomes a chore, and you're yeah, like, "Well, exactly. I've got to do one of them again." And I mean, that was that's always the thing. There, I don't think I've done one of these since end of September, beginning of October, um, and I've wanted to, but it, it, for me, it's like if I've got to be like, "Oh man, I have to rush them. I have to do that. Exactly. I have to cut." This may sound funny. It sounds like there's a breeze where you are, like your microphone, your microphone. I know you've got your cover in that, but there's a that's bit of a. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like there's there should a be absolutely no. That's better. Good. Yeah, that's better. All right, maybe a little loose connection on that then. I'm glad you said that though. Definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe it's just my might be my schnoz breathing into it. Maybe it's just well, a bit too close. I, I was thinking it might have been the beard, but then I thought, no, nah, it's got this because you got the sponge on it. But yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, no, when if it starts to seem like a chore, I couldn't, you know, like Joe Rogan's turning out three, four a week. And I mean, don't get me wrong, he makes millions of pounds. So like fair play. But even so, if that's a job then, and I, I think to myself, like, even if the podcasting was my job, I don't think I'd want to be doing that many a week that you have to feel like I have to be here and do this. I have to talk to this person. I have to, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, and like, you know, you know, four a week, three hours ago. Now, I mean, obviously, he's got a team that's doing his bookings and da 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 da, -da. Yeah. So, you know, he must just sit there and go, right, I want to speak to him, him, him and him. And they go, OK, Joe. And then they run off and do it all for him. You know, yeah. it's not, he's booking them in himself and whatever. But, you know, you, what you're saying is correct. I mean, you know, it's and, and he, I, I was listening to one of his podcasts the other day where he's talking about preparation. And obviously, sometimes he has an author on. And, you know, when, you know, if he has an author on, he's got to go and read at least one of their books. You know, yeah. so how long does it take to read a book? You're talking, that, there's fucking, you know, 10, 20, 30 hours worth of reading. Yeah. Depending on how big the book is. Um, you know, and or if he's getting, you know, if he's getting people on who are, you know, scientists or doctors or whatever, he's got to research the background. You know, he's got to decide, does he agree with what they say? Does he disagree with what they say? And then he's got to like if he dis particularly if he disagrees with what they say, he's then got to formulate an argument about why he disagrees with what they say. And exactly. I mean, fuck, I mean, that's odd. I mean, and you know, and some of the people that he has on are pretty high up. You know, and pretty smart. So, you know, it's not like he's, you know, it's not like he's just dragging some average dickhead in off the street and having an argument with him. You know what I mean? No, it's so a, yeah. And he rarely, he rarely sounds out of a depth. I mean, this is one of the things. So I, with with my Joe Rogan listening, I'm selective because I think you end up thinking like him mm. or because he has... Um, he obviously has a strict view on how things are. He's very open to change and stuff, but he, he views the yeah. world how he does. So lots of people he brings on, even if he doesn't agree with them, you're sort of still trying. So I have to have at times I'm like, not, I don't listen to him for a while because you end up, 
you end up like indoctrinated almost and you're just that's that's the train of thought so i switch out and i just say like yeah. right i'll only listen if Ari Shafir's on i'll always listen listen yeah, yeah, or yeah. if like you know brendan shops if it's a comedian i'll always listen because it's just going to be talking nonsense which i love Do you know what i mean just people just talking random nonsense and then if there's someone really good on i'll listen to it but then eventually it gets to the point where it might be like, I think the other day you had a woman on who was like into food and a guy who owned a restaurant. I'm not going to leave that alone for a little bit because otherwise it just becomes repetitive. You can't be talking into a microphone for 25 hours a week, every week and not become repetitive. Yeah. And I mean, well, the, 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 I suppose it's, it's a blessing and a curse now is that um, when he moved on to Spotify, it actually reduced the amount of time I would actually listen to him because uh, or, like I use the iTunes uh, podcast app. Yeah. So you know, um, I, my go-to's are a lot all Brendan Sharp stuff. You know, Fighter and the Kid. Um, uh, you know, uh, Big Brown Break. Well, what was the Big Brown Breakdown? Now the Sharp Show, I think it is. Um, you know, all, all of the stuff that he does. Um, I like Tom Segura, uh, Bert Kreischer. Um, you know, uh, stuff like that. Um, and then I was I was listening, which the thing that started me doing the Arbidazian pet was I was my favorite podcast, which is finished now, was Talking Sopranos. So that was yeah. Oh, did you, are you a, are you a Sopranos fan? Yes. Yeah. I, I, um, so I've only watched it through all the way twice, but obviously right. like, it's a fantastic series, right? It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- th- this is what happened. So it was it was uh, Michael Imperioli who played Christopher and mm-hmm. Bobby uh, and Steve Sharipa that played Bobby Bacala. And they came back, they they started talking Sopranos. So what we did with what we did with uh, that's where I got the idea for I'll be the same again, is what they did is so they 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 watched an episode and then they brought down the episode but obviously they had a lot more information than I would ever have you know so they were talking you know from a perspective of what was going on behind the scenes yeah, you yeah. know it was there and like you know and obviously stories about James Gandolfini and and stuff like that I mean absolutely I loved it but obviously there was only uh there was only you know 83 episodes uh, and they did a couple of extras so I think they had like 90 episodes in total so they started it again just as the lockdown started and then it fi- it finished uh, you know, was it a month or two ago? And so that used to come out every Monday morning. So I used to love Mondays because we knew the new episode. <laughs> yeah. And um, and yeah, and then that's so that's but so what I'll do is obviously I have the, the 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 podcasts I'm subscribed to, and I listen to them in the car. That's generally or if I'm like you know doing me laundry or doing whatever, I'll put it on in the yeah, kit. exactly just, same as me, you know, yeah, background kind of stuff. And um, and so. And, you know, it depends on what I'm doing work-wise. Obviously, again, working from home a lot now, I don't get to listen as much. You know, you know, a few years ago, I was working for a company and I was I had clients that were like in Doncaster and Manchester and Birmingham and that. So I was doing 500 miles a week, you know, up and down the country yeah. to go and visit clients. And so, you know, that's, you know, the, you know, essentially that's, a, you know, eight to ten hours of time in the car when you, you know, and, and I don't, I, I don't listen to music in a car. I'm purely podcast. So, you know, when, I mean, like as, as an example, Christmas time. So when I went to Newcastle at Christmas, that was when I listened to both of those Joe Rogans with the doctors on about the, about the, all the, the yeah. all the caused all the COVID fucking hoo-ha. And, um, you know, cause obviously it's a five hour drive, you know, yeah, so you exactly. fucking put your, put Joe Rogan on, set them up and that, and you just fucking zone out. And then away you go, and before you know it, you're past Sheffield, and you're you're heart, you're nearly home. You know what I mean? It's fucking yeah, yeah, so. 
Yeah, you, I mean, you, you, your uh, your appetite for a podcast is satisfied, satisfied the same way that mine is. It's basically in the car. If I'm pottering around, doing stuff around the house, cleaning up, or so if I'm at work in the day, if I'm on site and there's like a group of four of us, I can't, they want music on, they want Heart FM on or something. But like this week I've been doing a, like doing a water, uh, doing like a WC for someone in a utility room. So I've just been either LBC radio or podcasts the whole time I'm at work. I just I have people talk. I'll either tune into it or I won't. But the music, I can't just, and then tomorrow it's the same music played again. The yes. next day it's the same. So I'm always, if I'm on my own, I'm generally always podcasts or music. And my, my, my podcast, like yours, is uh, eclectic. But I like there's a good one. Is because you like stand up comedy. Um, uh, it's a good one, a UK one. Stuart Goldsmith is called the Comedians Comedian, uh, the oh. Comedians Comedians podcast or something. Comedian comedian Comedians Comedian podcast, I think it's called. That's really good. Like Stuart Lee and stuff would be on there, and Ross Noble. Ross Noble was a wicked one. Um, so they're really good. They're only like 35, 40 minutes long. Um. And then it'd be like, philosophize this or Neil deGrasse Tyson's if I want to, you know, like some someone to make me feel like an actual worm. I'll listen to something like that, you know. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Don't bring uh, me smart. Um, so I'm like the great thing about like astro, um, astrophysics and stuff for me is because I love it and I feel like I know nothing and I'll listen to a podcast. And I'm like, whoa, yeah, I get it now. I get black holes and the way the black holes work. And I'll go to sleep and I'll be like Groundhog Day, completely men in black torched. If someone asked me about black holes, I wouldn't have a clue what they were again. So I could listen to the same episode over and over again and think it's a different one. Yeah, mate, you think that's, mate, you think that's fucking bad, right? There's, check this, right? So I know a girl, right, who was my old next door neighbor's daughter in Newcastle, right? So this is like, you know, so I mean, you know, I left Newcastle when I was 19, I'm 45, you know? So we're talking, you know, 26 years ago. And so this, you know, I think we moved into that house when I was 16, 17, you know, just for the sake of argument, it was 30 years ago. So 30 yeah. years ago, this little girl that lived next door to me was a little girl. You know, she was like fucking seven years old or eight years old. And, and then obviously I left Newcastle and moved down here. So in my mind, she's still this little yeah. girl lives next door, right? No, 30 years later, she is a fucking rocket scientist, yeah? What? Is basically the female version of Neil deGrasse Tyson from England, yeah? And is like, basically, whenever the fucking BBC needs someone really fucking smart to talk about space, she's the person that they call, and she's on the fucking telly all the time. And I'm like... What do you mean you're on the telly all the time? You're a little girl, this big. You know? <laughs> it's fucking weird, mate. But yeah, she's called Anya, Anya O'Brien. Um, yeah, and she, she, if you have a look on my uh, friends list on Instagram, but it's it's the Irish, well, Scottish, her dad was. So it's A-N-I-E or A-I, uh, whatever, Anya. But yeah, Anya. So it's like the way, it's not spelt the way it's pronounced. So it's yeah. A-N-I-E, on O'Brien. And uh, she's, a, she's a professor at Glasgow University in some kind of fucking astrophysics, like, you know, um, quantum physics. I mean, like, 
oh, like, you know, shit that you're just like, whoa, my brain doesn't work that good. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Even when they, expl they, they explain it to you, like, this is this and this and this and this is that, and you're like, right, okay, yeah, so X equals Y, and then that obviously yeah. becomes Z, and they're like, yeah, that's right, you've got it. Unless, though, Z becomes part of XF, and you're like, I thought we had it. I thought we'd, we'd established what it was. Like, yeah, but there's always something else. Like, well, I'm, that's me fucked again. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I did, um, I, I tried doing physics A level. And and so I did, I did physics GCSE and got a B. And um, that's good. I mean, the thing was, like, my G, like, I smashed my GCSEs because I've got nothing more than a fantastic memory. You know, yeah. I was, I was blessed with the ability to retain information, um, you know, simple, relatively simple information. So, you know, that's why I like quizzes, because I'm quite good at quizzes, because, you know, retaining dodgy facts and stuff like that, I'm quite good at. And um, and so, you know, I did chemistry, I, I did physics, I did biology, um, A for chemistry, B for physics, B for biology, right? So, you know, scientist, you know, a scientific kind of mind. And then I went on to do physics A level. Oh yeah, that's not the same. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like about six months, about like I struggled through for the first six months, and about six months into it, like my teachers just like, like, yeah, I don't think this is for you, mate. I'm like, okay, no worries. See you later. Thank God you said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank I mean, God. but also, you know, it's by this time I was 17. Um, you know, I'd be first. I got my first job when I was 17 working in a pub. Um, and you know, for an embryonic alcoholic, it was ideal. And um. <laughs> And yeah, you know, so by the like, you know, 17, nearly 18, I'm fucking, that's when I started getting bang on the piss and that. And so, you know, you, you know, GCSEs were dead easy. You could like, you just fucking, I, like I did no work for my GCSEs and passed them all. And I just yeah. thought, oh, I'll be able to do that for my A-levels. And then A-levels went, yeah, no, that's not the way that this shit works. You've actually got to put some effort in. So I ended up getting like E's and D's for me fucking A-levels. Um, like scraped through, barely. And um, yeah, fucking. Um, if I if I put it, I mean, I believe it or not, like I went to like a really posh private school, and um, and like everyone I went to school with, they're all fucking doctors and lawyers and investment bankers and all that. And there's me just went, yeah, fuck that, I'm gonna go on the piss, and, <laughs> and then uh, and then talk about cage fighting for a living. <laughs> yeah. But but you went to a private school, so that's why you've got the mind of a pervert, and you can understand. Exactly. Funny comedy. There you go. Yeah. Um, you said about uh, your sobriety and stuff. Like what? So you don't do and you're no. nothing clean. No weed. No nothing no, at all. Nothing. So um, yeah, seven years. Uh, what day is it? Fucking what's the day? The day? It's the twenty. Yeah. So seven years, one month, and two weeks. Oh. Um, yeah. So I basically, I was one of those people that from day one. I was just wired up wrong when it comes uh, when it comes to chemicals. So the first time I, I the first time I was ever left unsupervised with alcohol, I nearly killed myself. And I was about twelve, like fucking bottle of whiskey. Me, me, mate, nicked this bottle of whiskey and went and hid in the loft. And um and fucking downed like half a bottle of scotch when I was twelve, mate. Like so, obviously, you know, a twelve-year-old child drinking half a bottle of whiskey, like that was good, only going to end one way. Yeah. And um, and so I was violently sick for like two days, and uh, you know it was borderline stomach pump, you know that kind of carry on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and then so after the two days was up, and I was sort you know I'd slept and slept off the hangover and what have you, 
I remember, I, you know, I was, you know, I, I was finally, you know, my mother, obviously, my mother was quite a disciplinarian. And, um, and so I was like, right, I'm going to go, can I go out? And she was like, you know, I was still in the doghouse. Yeah. Um, and so I, I was, I was allowed out. So I left the house and I was walking down the road to my mate to go and meet my mate. And just, I remember thinking, can't wait to do that again. Fuck. And that was just it from day one, mate. And so obviously, you know, when you're a teenager, you're not drinking on a daily basis. It's a more an opportunist thing, you know, yeah. so then, like, on a Friday night down the park. And, you know, whenever that, whenever there was an opportunity for me to drink, there were, you know, I would take it. And then by the time I got to like 17, 18, you know, I was, you get, you know, you, you got money and you get served in pubs and what have you. And then by the time I was 19, I was like a full blown alky. So, uh, so no. you think you think you were born an alcoholic? Yeah, yeah. You, yeah, yeah. Because well, I have this like um, I like I, I I'm into psychology a, a lot and stuff, and I believe that the alcoholism and any kind of addiction is obviously a disease. It's uh, an illness, right? I, I wholeheartedly believe that. And then of course you have to be logical and realize that that's not the same for everybody. Some people will just become alcoholics through situational and stuff so but i think there are people like from what you've said it seems to me like you were just you there just needed to be a catalyst and yeah. that was the bottle of whiskey and your mate in the loft yeah 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 but like even before that so now like obviously with work in a program like i can go back and look at my behavior as a child and some of the behavior that i was in that i used to exhibit as a child um, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, you know, things like that, that, that now I can look back on and consider to be alcoholic behaviour. That's what, you know, it's the way that you act as an alcoholic, but without actually having the drink inside of you. You know what I mean? So I, my, the way I describe it to non-alties, normal people like yourself, is what I say is that I, I felt that, you know, like what I'm talking about, how I felt inside. So what I felt in here and what I felt in here, I, I liken it to the same kind of feeling that you have when your shoes are on the wrong feet. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you know, sometimes if you're in a hurry and you're not looking and you accidentally put your shoes on the wrong feet yeah. and you stand up and you walk down the street and you go, oh, that feels funny. Yeah? yeah. You can still walk down the street, but it just yeah. doesn't feel right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I felt like inside. Unless you'd had a drink. And then the only way to make myself feel right was to have a drink. Yeah. So when I was a kid, when I was seven years old and eight years old, and I had this feeling inside of me as of restlessness, irritability, discontentedness, and, 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 and ungrounded fear, you know, I was a really scared little boy of, you know, and didn't really understand the world. And, and, um, and then, you know, and then I would do things like, you know, you know, live out fantasies in my head. Um, you know, I was like, I was like, you know, I used to say things to myself, like I'm adopted. I don't belong here. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm an alien. The aliens are going to come down and pick me up and that. You know, this is like when I was six, six, seven years old. When I was seven years old, I started, um, I committed, right, so I, I committed my first fraudulent act when I was seven. <laughs> and um, basically, at the time, there was a thing with the dinner, like there was a, there was something to do with the dinner ladies going on strike or there was something happening. And, and what happened is in Newcastle at the time, um, so this was, what, 83, something like that, you, you had to take your dinner money to school 
on a daily basis. There was no like paying it like once a month or, or anything like that, right? So every day, my mother used to give me a little brown envelope with like six, 60p, right? And um, and, uh, and and so I, I, then you'd go to school and then you'd walk into the dinner hall, you'd give your 60p to the dinner lady and you'd go and eat your dinner. And then one day I noticed that the dinner lady was being a fucking, uh, 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 like a, a gossipy bitch, right? And like had a back turned and was talking to her friend, yeah, when she should have been collecting the money, right? Yeah. So I like just accidentally this one day, like walked into the dinner hall, past the dinner lady and was stood in the queue and got my dinner and sat down. And I still had my dinner money in my pocket. Yeah. And and my little fucking brain went, ah. Yeah. That's what I just started doing on a daily basis. And like my, like, so I grew up in a, my dad left when I was a kid. So like very, very young, I didn't have a father figure. And, um, and um, my mother, uh, you know, my mother was, you know, just, you know, she don't, you know, this isn't, you know, I'm not saying that I was, you know, you know, I, you know, as a child, I was given everything that I needed. There was, you know, there was food on the table, there was clothes on my back, right? Yeah. But there were certain things that I wanted that my mother disagreed with, right? Yeah. One of them being panini football stickers, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, so you, can you imagine being in a class of children at school? And every single boy in the class has a Panini football sticker album. And you're the only one without yeah. one. Like, and like, so I already feel different. Yeah. I'm the yeah. kid without a dad. I'm the kid whose mother's a school teacher. You know, I'm, you know, I was born somewhere different. And, you know, I'm in this school and, you know, I'm the outsider to begin with. And then, you know, and then, like I say, then, you know, everyone's got a football sticker album. And I'd, so what I did is I learned to be devious and lie and cheat and steal to get what I fucking wanted. And yeah. that was a Panini football sticker album. And, you know, I was fucking seven now. You know, I'm like, that's what I want. <laughs> so, you know, that 60p that was your dinner money used to get me, I think it was five packets of football stickers. I think there were 30 pence a packet. I mean, whatever they were. I mean, you know, five packets. So I used to be able to buy. So I spent, I used to, I used to steal the dinner money and I used to spend it on football stickers. That was yeah. what I did. And, yeah. you know, what I'm saying is, is that behavior of a seven, eight-year-old child is not normal, yeah? That's not how normal seven, eight-year-old child children behave. But in my head, I saw an opportunity to get what I wanted, and, and there was no moral compass about, you know, don't do that, it's wrong. It was like, I want that. The only way I can possibly see to get that is by doing this. Therefore, I am yeah. going to do this regardless of the, the, the moralities or the consequences associated with it. And I mean, yeah, don't so get do you, eventually I got caught, you know. Yeah, so do you, like, do you think that that feeling inside and this, do you think there was always a propensity for alcohol or substances to, yeah. to be the solution for that? Or yeah. do you think that all it was, all it is, is you have this feeling and you have this, um, uh, not like a, a, a longing or like a feeling that something's missing. A hole in the soul. Yeah, so you have a hole. That's a great way of putting it. Um, a hole in the soul. So you have this hole in the soul. And do you think that maybe um, it's just, it can be risk that fulfills it. It's yeah, excitement absolutely. that fulfills it. It's not, so it's not necessarily the substance, but substances are a quicker route to it than yeah. going out and robbing a bank. 
Now, yes. So, and again, it's it's different strokes for different folks. So, I I've basically taken every drug known to man, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, including the naughty ones, and <laughs> um, and I didn't. The naughty ones didn't really take my fancy that much, right? So, my my go to was booze and weed, right? Yeah. If I had booze and weed, I was happy, right? Every like you know. Okay, when I say occasionally, I also did like you know, once I'd had four pints, then my nose would start twitching, and yeah. then you know, yeah. I'd fucking I'd, I'd get I'd, I'd get bang on the marching powder. And so I did, you know, I, I did a lot of cocaine. Yeah, I did a lot of cocaine. So again, over a 20-year period, you know, uh, and some you know, sometimes I'd be doing it every day, sometimes I'd do it once a month, you know, some I'd go through stages with it like that, you know, but essentially. I was never a dry user. So it's not like I would get up in the morning and take cocaine. I would get up in the morning and, and have a drink. And then after a certain amount of drinks, I would want to take cocaine. But it yeah. was not my thing. But you were uh, so you were drinking every day though? I would smoke weed every single day. Yeah. And I would drink probably five days a week at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was the weed that probably kept me going longer. Because if I didn't have weed, I would drink. Uh, but yeah. But what I'm saying is that it was the alcohol that brought me to my knees. Yes. It was the alcohol that really fucked me over. But then, you know, like, I've smoked crack. I, I, smoked, I smoked crack hundreds of times. Yeah. But again, it was only something I ever did when I was really fucking drunk. You know, it's not like, it's not like I, I wouldn't, I, I, I don't consider myself to, like, I, I go to NA meetings, right? And I sit there and go, my name's Andy, I'm an addict. But I don't consider myself an out and out drug addict, right? I'm an alcoholic who just, happens to take drugs when I get fucked up, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and again, like, so I tried heroin and, and it made me sick and it just wasn't my thing, you know what I mean? But, so I know, like, what I'm saying is different strokes, different folks. So as an example, I know a guy who used to do 10 grams of coke a day and didn't drink, right? And I'm like, you're fucking weird, mate. Yeah. yeah? <laughs> but that was the way that he liked it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I know a woman um, who was a perfectly normal person, right? Was married to a quite a successful businessman. You know, he was like a director of a large company, you know, lived in, you know, they lived in, I think it was Essex or Surrey or whatever, lived in one of the home counties, you know, big house, 2.4 kids, you know, the all of the trappings that you would expect to go along with that kind of lifestyle. Yeah. And she had, um, and she was like in her mid thirties and her life to all intents and purposes for anybody from the outside looking in, her life was perfect, right? And one day she was out for a friend's birthday and somebody had some cocaine and they took her into the toilet and they put a line of cocaine out and she did it, right? 34 or 36 or something. And it was the f- and that was the very first time she'd ever touched a drug in her life. And that was at like two o'clock in the afternoon. By four o'clock that afternoon, she rang her husband and told her husband she was leaving him, right? She then moved in with a cocaine dealer, <clears throat> sniffed cocaine every day for the next 10 years. <coughs> and just... Who, why, like, there is no logical reason as to why that would happen. But there was something, exactly, there was something inside of her head 
that when she did that first line of coke, just went boom and just and it snapped and she just changed. And then, like what what you said as well, again, I know a guy who, you know, was a normal guy, you know, up until the age of about 50. And then, you know, tragically, about age 50, his wife died of cancer. And, you know, he was one of them people, you know, they, they they met when they were 16, they got married when they were 18, and they lived happily ever after, you know, and he, like, his entire life was his wife, and he loved her more than anything, obviously, and, um, and yeah, and then, you know, when he was 50, she, tra- she tragically died, and he found comfort in the bottom of a bottle, and, um, and five years later, he's sitting in an AA meeting at the age of 55. You know, I went to my first AA meeting when I was 29, and I could have went, I could have went when I was 19. Yeah, yeah. And you went, and it still wasn't enough at the time. I guess you've got to, uh, like, you you never know what is going to be. This going to be the, the turning point where this is it, is over, or it might never be over, I guess. You'll always be, you'll always be that addict. I mean, it's hard for me because I'm not, I stopped drinking at 17, Um and people are like, well, you haven't even started drinking, but we all know you have. Like, 17, I was in town every single weekend drinking with my mates. And then uh, my 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 girl I was with, then she got pregnant with my daughter. She couldn't drink anymore. I was like, well, I won't drink. But we were drinking every night, going to the pub and that, so she couldn't drink. So I was like, well, I won't drink. Then I got a job on the door for the extra income. And then in the last 21 years, I've been drunk I'll say five times. It's probably not that many. And I've probably drank alcohol 12 times in in that amount of time, you know? So for me, it was, there's never, there was never a propensity to, for alcohol to be a solution to anything. Yeah. Alcohol was always a problem for me. Like I would drink and I feel, fuck, I feel long over. I got to go to work. So as where for someone like yourself, it would be, or I could drink a bit more, feel good and then go and do mm-hmm. work. For me, I would see the, the problem, like the pro- the problem would outweigh the solution. For yeah. me. And then with drugs, like, I mean, I smoke weed here and there. If I have a really hard training session and my body hurts, I'll smoke weed. I might not smoke it for four months. Then I might smoke it five days in a row. And there's never any correlation with I'm going to smoke weed this amount of time. I'll just pick it up and put it down as in when I want. DMT, the same, everything. Fucking so, people like you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, but my thing is, so everything I do do, I think I can be like... So darts, I'm pretty good at darts, right? So I'm like, well, maybe at my age now, I'm probably not going to fight again. Maybe I could be a darts champ, get a good level at darts. I'll just play darts five hours a day, or I'll just, I'll get an eagle, and I'll just fly an eagle every day, and I'll just, I'll base jump, and most people do 50 a year. I'll do 400 base jumps in my first year, and I just lose my shit with things that I do. Yeah, you know? it's, Let's go. it's been obsessive, yeah. but, um, you know, we can all be like that. I mean, I, I mean, you know, our... I mean, you're obviously, you know, you're the same as me, you know, heavily into the, heavily into MMA. And yeah. um, I remember, do you remember there was that thing that someone, it was like, you know you're into MMA if, and it was like, you know, and it had the list of all the things, yeah. and you just tick them off and go, yeah, I do that, I do that, I do that. Yeah. I remember, the, the, the one I remember specifically was that when people come round, you'll put a fight video on just for the background atmosphere. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I do that. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I'll be like, I'll just put this fight video on there, just you know, so there's something. And um, and I remember, you know, I remember when I first got into MMA, and um, you know, my, you know, my, it was I was still with my kid's mother at the time, and she was just like, like it went from being like, because I remember 
I found the what what it was is obviously I'd been I don't I'd done martial arts a lot of my life like you know karate and judo and and a bit of kickboxing and what have you and um and obviously I'd I'd known that there was you know I'd heard the there was that there was the thing on Bravo called Bushido and that yeah. was like a kind of MMA. And and uh, and obviously this and I'd heard these rumors of you know about ultimate fighting and and that and like and I didn't like I'd never really seen it but I'd heard about it kind of thing uh, and uh, and I went to a car boot sale and this was two thousand and one you know so um, yeah about two thousand and one and I've gone to this car boot sale and I was just you know on flicking through and I saw these two videos. And it was like some MMA, but it was like old school MMA, like WCW or something like that. And it was like there was one of the Gracies was in it and Bart Vale. And, um, and you know, it was it, it, you could still headbutt and stuff like that. And it was, yeah. you know, a bit more Valet Tudor-ish. And so I bought these two videos at this car boot sale for like a quid. And I've gone home and I've, I've the VHS tapes and I've put it on and I've just gone. That's the fucking greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like you, you know, I, I was working on the door. So I started doing door work when I was 19. And um, and so, you know, I'd done martial arts. I'd worked on the door. You know, I'd, you know, I'd been surrounded by, you know, me mate, like, you know, guys I was working on the door with were like professional fighters, like kickboxers and stuff like that. And so, you know, I'd been around, you know, violence and confrontation and, and martial arts for, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of my life. And, um, and you know, that's not to say that I was ever any good or that I was, you know, whatever. you know, as a child, like I say, I still lived with this in it, this big, you know, low self-worth and, and, uh, and low self-esteem and, you know, and the fear, this ungrounded fear. And it was like I say, it was only when I got to about age 19 that um, I was when I first moved down south and I was sharing a gaff with a, one of, I was working as a barman in a nightclub and I was sharing a gaff with one of the doormen. And he was this guy called Jim, big fucking scary ex-military policeman. Could have a right row. And, um, you know, and he said to me, he said, why don't you work on the door, Andy? And I was like, ah, fucking, I can't do that. And he went, look, man, he goes, you're fucking massive and you can have a right row. And I was like, actually, you're right. <laughs> and, um, and, and so I started, I, like, so then I went and got myself a job on the door. And obviously it was, you know, I'd still, you know, like I say, I'd done a bit. The judo was very, very good for the door work and stuff like that. And so I managed to hold my own. And um, and then, like I say, you know, so I've been involved in, uh, you know, I've been involved in bits and pieces. And, you know, I, you know, you get to your early 20s and you've had, you know, by this time I'd had, like, I was working in a nightclub. It was full of, like, full of travellers and squaddies and that. And it was just proper lunacy violence every Friday and Saturday night. And so you're used to, like, big confrontations, 30 people fighting and that, and you're just, and, you know, and you get used to it. And then you, you get a you get a sense of confidence in in violent situations. And then, obviously, I started refereeing later on. And, you know, you just so now I'm so used to being in close proximity to violence. It's like, it, 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 it just doesn't bother me at all. In any yeah. yeah. And uh, also, you are... You are um, as closely intertwined in UK MMA as Michael Bispin. There's no, yeah. like, I mean, uh, obviously you would say that myself, James Thompson, Mike Bispin, Lee Remedius, um, us guys were, because we all started around the same sort of time. Like my first ever fight was 2002. Um, so it really early days, you know, like us guys, that's like early UK MMA. But you were right, although you weren't fighting, 
Yeah. You're you're right there. You're like, you know, yeah, you're yeah, right yeah. there from the early days of MMA. So people who may be listening to 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 this and know me as a fighter might not necessarily know your name, but yeah. by proxy, but you are as intertwined in UK MMA as any of the top yeah, names yeah, yeah. from UK MMA. Well, I'm, 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 thanks for saying that. And 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 yeah, I mean I, I do don't get me wrong, I do like to sort of think of myself that way. And um and yeah, I mean you mentioned Lee. So you know what happened was so I've got these two videos from the car boot sale i've watched these videos i've become obsessed and then and then and then around the same time there was that video there was that program on channel five that lee was on that natural brother fighters. yeah lee and his brother and um and so obviously i've watched this and i've seen like and so i was like lee remedios he's the fucking coolest guy known the man <laughs> and um, and i've like became a proper lee remedios fanboy and um and then, uh, and then UFC came to the UK, uh, UFC 38. So um, I got tickets for that. And obviously in the build-up to UFC 38, they were showing UFC on Sky. Um, and uh, and obviously I was working on the door in Twickenham at the time, in this rough pub in Twickenham, where people were always getting stabbed and stuff like that. So I'm watching, I'd be stood on the door in Twickenham with a fucking UFC on the TV in the background and stuff like that. And then... Um, and then, yeah, so we came to uh, UFC 38. And in the program at UFC 38, there was a thing for the Frank Shamrock seminar. There was an advert. And I thought, right, well, and like, obviously, I'd like, done a bit of judo, done a bit of karate, done a bit of kickboxing. I'm like, right, well, that's set me right up for turning up with the Frank Shamrock seminar with every professional fighter from the fucking UK. <laughs> uh, and, um, and so I've, um, I've, it was down in Kent and... And, um, and I've turned up at the Frank Shamrock seminar, and Lee Remedios was there. And I was like, fucking way. Like, you know, <laughs> and obviously, because like two weeks before, he'd been fighting Genki fucking Sudo. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so I've gone down there now. I'm, like, so on the train on the way down, I met uh, Kevin Cable, Kev Cable, who's yeah. the head instructor of uh, Hodger uh, Gracie uh, in books. And there was some, a couple other guys as well. And uh, and yeah, there was like I said, there was a lot of famous, you know, you, like what who I now know as famous UK MMAs, and um, and then we were on the like so we'd done the seminar, and I was on the train on the way back, and um, there was a guy I was on the train with, and he started talking about SFUK, and he goes, oh, he goes, do you get on the forum? I was like, no, what's that? And he goes, oh, there's a forum called SFUK, <laughs> and um, and he goes, it's everyone talks about MMA, and I was like. I'm fucking in. Yeah. And, um, and so obviously I've gone home, registered on the forum, and then that was it. You know, once you were like fucking, once you like, if you were an SFUK, you were the one of the original UK MMAs. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then obviously I started going to shows. So my first UK promotion was Cage Rage 2 in Bethnal Green and um, Extreme Brawl 2 in uh, Bracknell. And um, and then obviously, so at the time, before I had a kid, I was making quite good money in London and I always bought a, a table. Yeah. So I would go and obviously this was when there wasn't much money in MMA and nobody knew about it. And so, you know, obviously I'm speaking of, you know, Dougie Truman, um, you know, Andy Gear, uh, Andy Jardine. And then also I was working in London. So I started going to the gyms. So I started training at Elite Fighting Systems under Dave O'Donnell. Um, I was going to, um, where else did I go? I can't remember now. Yeah, there was, oh yeah, I used to go down to um, Tokai in London Bridge. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's and I, again, bumped into Lee down there. 
Yeah. So he used to do the, there was a wrestling class on a Saturday and it was regarded as basically the best wrestling class in the UK. Um, and it was like Lee Remedios, James Zietch, you know, so, and some real tasty geezers from London shooting that. And uh, just before the wrestling class, there was a BJJ class. Uh, it was taught by Ronaldo Campos. Mm-hmm. And so I started training BJJ down there. And obviously, you know, that was when I got this, got to, like really got to know Lee and, and James Zietch and, and, and a few others. And then, so obviously I'm, I'm going to the gyms, I'm training, I'm getting to know people, and then I'm buying the tables for the events. So I'm getting to know the promoters quite well. And then, um, and then anyway, so, you know, fast forward, what, six months or whatever. Gone to the, I've gone to Extreme Brawl in, it was must have been like Extreme Brawl 3 or something like that. And like the MC was fucking terrible, right? Like didn't know the names of any moves or anything like that and just, like was fucking it, it just was rubbish, right? And um, and obviously I'm pissed out my face, full of coke and that. And we've gone to the after party, and I'm sat at the table, like I say, Dougie, Andy Gear, you know, Andy Jardine, Dave O'Donnell. I'm sat round on the promoter's table, like fucking like holding court, thinking I'm fucking something special, you know, full of gear, talking shit. And um and I just but, said, but also, those guys loved that back in that day because that's yeah, what yeah. MMA was back then. It was like it was loud in your face, brash. They loved that back then. Exactly, and um, and so, and I just said to Andy Jardine, and I went, I said, "You fucking see that guy on the microphone?" I said, "He was fucking shit." I was like, "Rubbish." I said, "He," I said, "He was absolutely terrible, worst I've ever seen." And I went, "I could do a better job than that." And Dougie Truman just turned around and went, "Really?" He goes, right. He goes, I've got an event in two weeks' time. He goes, you're doing it. And I just went, oh, all right then. <laughs> and, um, and so that was Cage Warriors 4 in Portsmouth. And that was in July 2003. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, so I'd been knocking around the scene for, you know, 12, 18 months by now, you know, so I knew... Let's see. I, I knew, I knew, I knew quite. You know, and I, I, you know, me, me sort of, my name was out there on the forum and whatever. And then, so next thing, I'm down. Thing, Alex Reed was refereeing. Yeah. Um, Paul Daly was fighting. Um, uh, there was, I mean, like Lee Murray was there, at, in the audience. There was obviously lunge. Uh, Ross Pettifer was fighting. Uh, Bailey was there. Um. Uh, uh, and all the Butlins were there. Ian Butlin was yeah. fighting. Dave, um, Andy Butlin was fighting. Um, uh, yeah, so I just, you know, there was a lot of, you know, you know, tr- you know, a lot of old school, influential MMA people. At the originals. Of, yeah, the yeah, originals. The originals yeah. And obviously I got to know them all. And, um, and yeah, and just, you know, that was it. And then, and then, so I did that show just thinking, well, that's it. You know, I've, I've had a go. It was fun. And so that was, like I say, I did, I did Dougie, show, that was for Dougie Truman, Cage Warriors 4. And then at the end of the show, Andy Jardine came up to me and went, all right, you did a good job there. He goes, you can do my show in a few weeks. He goes, we've got another one coming up. And then it just went like that, bump. And then yeah. before you know it, and, um, and you know, this was back in the day. So it was like, there was Cage Warriors, there was Extreme Brawl, there was Cage Rage, and still Ultimate Combat. Yeah. And that was it, really. There was and what and our oh, total combat in and Peter McQueen was doing a show, but that was it, really. I mean, there was four. FX three was FX three around then. That came later. Later. So um, so yeah, so I was uh, you know, I was um, 
so I was doing that. So that, that was the scene for about the next couple of years, and um, and then uh, and then basically the, the, there was a that was when and then they sort of came around FX3, and obviously I spoke to Paul, and you know my my kid's mother's from Redden, so I, like you know even though I, I didn't live in Redden at the time like I do now, um, I still had a bit of a link there. So I went and met up with Paul, and you know and that that was when F, so FX3 started. 2005 yeah um and i mean you know that those for uh, you know for my money right that that time period that was the glory days of uk mma you oh, know and it was yeah and and you know what they say is you know be careful what you wish for because you might just fucking get it and you know, yeah. back, you know back in 2005 2004 2005 you know Everyone was like, oh, I can't wait to be on the TV. I can't wait for UK people to be in the UFC. I can't wait for us to be recognised yeah. as a sport. I can't wait for there to be more events. And then now, you know, fucking 15, 16 years later, we've got all that shit. And, and the scene's bollocks compared to what it used to be. Yeah, oh, 100%. And you see, like, it makes you sound like um, a, a snob when you say it. But like, oh, I mean, no, it's I, like an old man, isn't it? Oh, when I were a lad, things were yeah, different. Back in my day. <laughs> but, like, I, so, like, obviously, well, like, I started, me and James Thompson were bailiffs together, moving gypsies. And uh, that's a, I was a judo guy. And I was like, oh, there's this cage right. And he's, yeah, I've been offered a cage right. James did. And anyway, he took it. I helped coach him on the ground with it for his first ever fight. And then that was the catalyst. But I remember, like, even before that, when I was watching MMA, I'd watched lots of watched UFC 3, I think was the first MMA that I saw. But then, obviously, it came to the UK. I'd seen uh, Lee and his brother on that show. And then I saw Lee fight. And then you go forward a couple more years. I'm coaching Lee for his fights. Like the last, I think the last seven or eight of his fights, he was training with me and I was coaching yeah. in corner for his fights. He's down the road from you now, don't he? He's yeah, chipping them, mate. Yeah, chipping them. So it was like me, me, Reedy, Greg Knapp, um, and a couple of others. That was our little unit local. Uh, and then everyone used to come from all around. But like, what, like, what happened to Greg? He was good. Lives in Australia now. So he, uh, he, he went down to start fighting at Bantamweight and he beat James Doolan. Um, and that that might have been his last one, just a weight cut. He'd had enough. Pieces. Greg was always a, oh, I'll fight if I want to fight sort of guy. And but if I want to go traveling, so he got like a remember job. That, like, remember when he fought that um, Simon, what do you call it, on FX3? And yes. they fucking, they stood toe to toe for yeah. three rounds and punched the fuck out of each other. One of the greatest fucking fights you'll yeah. ever see. That was phenomenal. Well, Greg was one of those guys who would not train. And when I say not train, I mean, he wouldn't even shadow box for six months. He'd be off in Thailand. He'd come back, walk in the gym and he'd sub me and read it. You know, huh? And then <laughs> oh, don't get me wrong. You'd, I mean, you might have subbed him seven times before that, but he's not trained and he'll catch you with something or you'll box with him. And he'll have like, it's weird. Sorry, blah, 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 just stand in your face. And he was just one of those oh, freaks. Just one of those freaks. Just once he was in it, he was in it. But then he's for for my money, I think I think he probably had it right. You had people who like so for me, I made MMA my absolute life for a while. Bought a gym, like developed a fight team, blah blah blah. And you get people who like Mike. Mike Bispin obviously made it his whole life, his whole career, and he's been rewarded. 
but there's a plethora of people between Mike and Greg Knapp who have got the granny smashed out of them, made no money, stacking shelves in supermarkets now or whatever they're doing. Do you know what I mean? Like, and you're like, it's too hard. It's too hard a job to be middle of the road. And I say yeah. to everyone who comes to my class, if you can do anything else and be happy in life, do that before you choose to be an MMA fighter because not even middle of the road. I mean, you're talking, you know, to make the money, to make money, you've got to be tip of the spear. I mean, you know, yeah. there are, you know, there are, uh, it's, I mean, you're talking, I mean, maybe it's a little bit more now, but you know, we're talking, you can count on one hand, the people who have made life changing money in this country. Yeah. You know, yeah. not even that, you know, like, so Bisping, yeah, you know, um, uh, you know, Darren Till's probably doing pretty well with his endorsements and what have you, and da-da-da-da-da. Um, you know, Paul Daly, you know, I know he's done quite well out of Bellator. And, uh, you know, but what I'm saying is, is, you know, the, you know, in reality, I mean, you know, they're all still working jobs, you know, I mean, you know, it's not like, um, you know, I know Bisping's, you know, analyst for the UFC, a little bit different. But um, you know, Daly's got a gym, and uh, you know yeah, all exactly. that kind of stuff, and 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 yeah, just it's not, you know, and and um, you know, it's not like you know, you know, like Tyson Fury, you know, has a boxing match and gets paid fifty million pound. No, and, yeah. and you know, you've never got a, you've never got a, never got, you know, that's if if you never got up out of bed to go to work ever again, as long as you live, you're still gonna have fifty million pound in the bank. Well, you're gonna make money. You're gonna make money doing nothing, just having it in the yeah. bank. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so and, like I. I, I think all the time, people say to me all the time, they're like, do you wish you um, did more, didn't fly your eagles? you wish you, and I'm like, for, so I was the first person ever from Bristol to fight MMA. Um, I was the first person from the UK ever to go to the US and do the ultimate fighter tryouts. Mike and Ross got bit, like scouted here. I flew to the tryouts, went through, I'm the first person ever to do it. Things like that for me are way more important in a UFC fight, when I see people like Nad, Nad Naramani, who obviously was one of my teammates, we've trained together for years, he gets in the UFC, gets given two absolute monsters, on short notice one of them as well, and you're like, that that wouldn't mean more to me than the things that I did do. So I think you've yeah. got to just, to, and especially from back in our day where the whole want to fight was just to want to fight. There's, there's this thing that you can do, can you handle the training and go and do the, yeah, I'm going to fucking fight. And I think it's like the sport is much better in terms of a sport now yeah. in the variety and the technicals, but it's not what the glory days were. Man. There's fighting in bars with nowhere to warm up and stuff, mate. Like, well, that's you know what you've just said. You know the the, the mentality surrounding the, the sport um, is is definitely changed. You know because of Conor McGregor, obviously, and you know and others to a certain degree. But you know it. You know now. You know, you know the, young, the the younger generation, if they if they're serious about it, will look at it as a career, as a potential. You know, if I do this, I will not have to go and stack shelves in Tesco's, and I can make money if I am good. If I dedicate myself and I work hard, I can make money out of this. Whereas, you know, you know, twenty years ago, people did it because they loved fighting. Yeah. Yeah, or, and or it's what a challenge that like I'm gonna push myself. I'm gonna, yeah. Because yeah. there was fuck. I mean, like you know, let's have it right. You know, I mean, I'm sure you know that f those first few events I was doing, most of the fighters did it for nout, or you know they fucking did it for you know a hundred quid, two hundred quid, and 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 a ticket deal and what have you. You know, that's 
you know, the thing, the, the sad thing about it was, is, you know, it, it's sort of, it's gone the opposite way for being an MC. So back in the day when I first started as an MC, there was only like three of us in the country. So you got paid, you got paid quite well for being an MC. You know, yeah. I was getting, I was getting 300 quid, 400 quid, some events, right? Yeah. And this was 20 years ago. It was, and, it was you, there was, what's his name? Boo. Boo, yeah, yeah, Phil Walker. Phil MC Walker. Boo. And there was um, and there was Mark Applin, God rest his soul, yeah. he's passed on now. Yeah. There was the, they called him Pike EMC, who did fucking Cage Rage. Um, but so you always stood out. So for me, like you, like I, it's not just because you're on my podcast. You know me. I wouldn't fucking like just say stuff for the sake of it. You're you were the voice of UK MMA for me. Like that was Sledge. Time, yeah. Sledge was the MC. That was if you were gonna if you were gonna say to me now, oh draw. Draw the MMA event now um, of what would solidify you for British MMA. Of course, there's some modern guys in there, but like you'd be MC without a shadow of a doubt. Probably be Dave, Dave promoting it as long as he didn't right. have to promote it, but it'd be Dave promoting it. But you'd have to have like, you know, Paul Jenkins would have to be on there oh. just because like Paul Jenkins is probably considered a journeyman, but the hardest journeyman in the world if he's a journeyman. 100 fights. Like, fight. Yeah, he's no. just. Insane. I mean, just yeah. So for me, you, for my money, you were, you're the voice of UK yeah. MMA. You know. Well, you mentioned Jenkins. It was putting so. I mean, fuck me. It must be the first twenty events I emceed. Jenkins fought on every single one of them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And um, and obviously, you know, I mean, so again, from back then, and you know, some of the mates that you made. I mean, like I was. Um, you know, one of one of my best friends out of the MMA scene was uh, Lee Dosky. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, Do I, like, I met Dosk at Extreme Brawl, and uh, you know, me and him got on like a house on fire. And um, he ended up when I was when I was out in Spain. I used to when I was working on the door Linekers in Port of Anus in Spain. He came out and stayed with me for a month. I got him working on the door out there with us and everything like that. Yeah, I mean, what an absolute legend Dosky is. Is he is he still doing music now or something? Yeah, doing music? I mean, in essence. So he's he, he's 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 sort of a, he's got a few strings to his bow, but yes, music is one of the biggest parts of his life. Um, so he plays in bar, like cover bands and stuff like that. You know, I don't like you know I, I don't think he, I don't think he might be saying that. You know, I don't think he's got a Grammy or a Brit Award in his future at any point. But um, you know, he, he does write his own songs and he's funny and he, he's talented. And I've seen him. He's one of them people. So when he was in Spain, he brought all his guitars and that with him. And we got him a few gigs in some of the bars around Marbella and stuff like that. But I've seen him do it where he's one of them people that can sit with a guitar and you can play a song, right? So he's never heard this song before in his life. And you play him the song and he can just play it on the guitar like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And like that's proper, it's that proper music talent, you know, being yeah. able to just with an ear and a guitar it'll just listen and then just start playing it. And you're like, whoa, that's fucking. So yeah, I mean, super talented musician. Um, and he obviously runs it. He's black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, runs Carlson Gracie Norfolk. So he's got his own jiu-jitsu gym. So, you know, teach it like he's on the mats, you know, five, six days a week. Yeah. And, um, but he's also a combat instructor for the police. Oh, okay. So he, teaches undercover policemen how to fight if required yeah. and um so you know he was telling me that uh, I, mean, I don't think i'm letting the fucking i don't think i'm letting any secrets out the bag there but uh, you better hope you're not anyway 
But um, he, uh, you know, so he was telling me once that they were, you know, there was these undercover coppers were going to do some like, you know, undercover drug deal or something like that. And they said, right, we're going to be in a car when it happens. What happens if it kicks off in the, the car? So then they'd all, they'd bring a car into this place and then they'd sit in the car and Lee would be like, right, if this happens, this is what you do. And, and he would then teach, instruct them on the best form of, you know, defence with, you know, how to fight people in certain areas of their job and that. And I was like, that's pretty fucking cool, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, I mean, again, you know, so Lee is, you know, obviously had, what, you know, 30 MMA fights. Um, he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu, you know, did obviously a lot of amateur boxing back in the day and, and whatever. And, um, you know, I've, I've, done a li- I've done a little bit, of, I've, I've trained with him a couple of times, you know, not, you know, like not extensively or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, he's a, he, and he's a very, his fight IQ and he's a very cerebral fighter. You know, for me, you know, I mean, like, you know, like, again, you know, I, you know, I, I still box now because it keeps, you know, it's the only thing that I, because I've got dodgy knee, it's the only thing I can do really that's, you know, still involved in, in you know, so, you know, I'd limited Thai boxing because uh, my kid loves it, but I can't do jujitsu, I can't wrestle or anything like that. Um, and you know, you know, if I if I, I don't spar anymore because I have my teeth done, but uh, <laughs> but um, but you know, up until when up until when I fractured my eye socket, and I was still sparring. You know, you put me in a ring to spar with someone, I'm just going to fucking start throwing shots at them and hope I catch them with something. You know, <laughs> he's like, he's like, right. So what you do is you flick your jab out. You see which way they react to it. And then based upon their reaction, I'm then going to do something else. And then I'm going to yeah, do something. Exactly. And he's like, he's, you know, like not chain, re- you know, but they talk about chain wrestling. You know, he's like, his 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 fight IQ is looking five and six moves ahead in the fight. Yeah, exactly. Whereas exactly. I'm just looking to fucking twat you as best yeah. as I can. You know what I mean? Yeah, which you, like, so I teach how Lee thinks. That's the way that I teach or I try and get people, like, you know, I say to people, like, when I'm in a, if I'm in an MMA fight with you, I'll let you jab me because I thought I saw you dropped your hand when you took your hand back. So I'll let you jab me and limit it. I'll parry it if I can, but I'll let you jab me in the face to see how you react and we'll counter that. And then you get fighters like you and you have to realise it. You can't coach everybody the same, right? There's not, you're never going to be Lee Dosky. You've got to yeah. find a, a way of teaching the two things. But I think MMA, UK MMA, has lost its legitimate characters who, oh, yeah. you know, like you've got people who are wanting to be characters now, but it's lost its legitimate because lots of the guys, like, you know, myself and uh, Lee and all the, like, these, you go through loads of uh, Mike, all those, we all had. Uh, life well before we became MMA fighters, you yeah. know, like whatever we'd done. Those guys now are like 16, go 15, going to the gym. They've not had any adult experiences or life other than I'm going to be an MMA fighter. And I think the characters have gone out and we're turning over a factory of MMA fighters. Some are better than the other. So a lot of the character comes out of watching how other MMA fighters conduct themselves or how Connor behaves in a press conference as where. You know, sometimes people are turn up drunk to our press conferences before the day before they fight. You just don't know what was going to happen. And it was actual, the people were already characters in their self and the scene grew around them. Well, you know, I mean, like, you know, you talk about characters, like I said before, you know, first show I ever did, fucking Lee Murray was in the audience. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, um, and well, I was at his weigh in with Anderson that, that, like, yeah. I was there for that weigh in, and that got like, so he, when he walked in, 
to the way because of the people he always had around him and stuff as well. The atmosphere was it would just oh ugh. scary. You people say to because I was also there the first time he came to Cage Rage after he got stabbed. And I didn't recognise him. I was like, me and James Thompson are sitting there watching. It might have been when Manhoff fought a cyborg, actually. It might have been that show. And I said to James, I was like, who's that? But Lee Murray. I was like, no. And he must have been 11 stone, mate. He, must, like, yeah, yeah, he, lost, he, he, he was down. So, I mean, he, he, was, he used to fight at 85. And he was walking around at, like, you know, what, 1995? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and, yeah, and apparently, after he got stabbed, he was he, he walked into London shoot. And he was like fucking seventy-five kilos, ringing Mate, wet. He was so small. He was. I didn't. Well, I didn't recognise him. He had a lush leather jacket on in that, but it looked too big for him. And he went, "That's Murray." I was like, "Fucking hell!" Like shot because obviously we all know that he'd been stabbed and stuff. But even then, mate, you'd just be around, and there was just an aura around the guy, right? I don't think oh, I'm oh. wrong in saying that. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, like he was. Look, you know, one of those people that if he was in the room. There was just an air of uncomfortability in the room, you know what I mean? Because you knew that at any moment he could take offence to someone saying something. And well, if you ask Remedios, I wasn't there. Remedios will tell you this is because I remember Remedios described it as the groundkeeper's willy. You know, groundkeeper. You know, groundkeeper yeah. willy in The Simpsons, yeah. where he fucking rips his shirt off. Yeah. yeah? So it was. They were at some fight show in Essex, and. Apparently, like, fucking Murray's there, like, the corner someone or whatever or, you know. Anyway, apparently, like, one of the security, one of the doormen, like, decided that where, like, Lee Murray shouldn't have been stood where he was stood. And he's come over and said, you've got to move. And Lee Murray went, yeah, fuck off, basically. And the guy went, who are you telling to fuck off? Like, made the worst mistake of his life. Yeah. And the next thing, fucking Lee's just gone bang, bang, bang and just knocked him out. And, um, and then, obviously, like, fucking like six doormen have come running towards Lee Murray and he's just gone, Rah! ripped his fucking shirt off and just leveled them all. Yeah. And, um, you know, he, I mean, he had that, well, he had that bit about him where a was really t like, people have told me stories about when, cause he used to go to a Peacock's gym with Mark Rowe and people yeah. have told me stories like he'd go there and, um, He'd be sparring and like like getting it put on him by proper heavyweight boxers. Like Lewis used to spar there. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, proper. Yeah, yeah. I think like it was someone like Herbie Hyde or someone he was sparring with. Like someone back. It might not have been Herbie. Someone like that though. And he's sparring with him. So like, and he's getting his face punched in, but he's just an animal. Just can't stop him. He was one of those people who was technically a good fighter, but was just a vicious. Well, went three, I mean, went three rounds with Anderson Silva when Anderson Silva was a fucking, you know. And Anderson was too scared to engage with him. If you yeah. watch that fight, Anderson just wanted to score the points and get out of the fight. He was, like, yeah, he was legitimately a great fighter. But, yeah, he, he, I mean, and that's not, I got not a bad word to say about him. He was always, like, nice with me. Always oh, yeah, yeah, fucking nice to me. But the vibe was, and he had people around him, and you always felt like, those cunts would prove that try and prove themselves to him at any point. Yeah, 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 just, yeah. just made me feel a bit like every time I was a bit like, oh, has the heating gone off in here or what? Yeah, yeah, mate. I mean, like, so I remember, um, do you remember, did you go to that Extreme Force show where he knocked out Pele Landy? It was at uh, Wembley Conference Centre. No, I wasn't there. No, I oh. know I know exactly what the show that you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was this was the fight before he went to the UFC. Yes. And so um I was I was I had like, I had bought a couple of ringside tickets 
And um, and then I, I, I remember I, was, I think I was stood next to Ross Pettifer and, um, and you know, we were just fucking having a chat and whatever and da 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 da. Anyway, then obviously, you know, there's been, you know, there was a full night of fights and I think Zikic had been fighting and I think Reedy was refereeing and, you know, there was, there was proper, you know, it was run by London Shoot, you know, Paul, yeah. it was Paul and Alexis that had put the show on and it was basically the show was there to, to show Lee Murray off. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, so obviously, and then um, this was when I realized the kind of power that not like as an individual, but as a person. So Lee Murray's obviously, you know, started fighting and, you know, the noise is whatever. But then when he won and he's knocked this matey out, like 400 people ran forward to the side of the cage yeah. and that's like that because he was like head of the Woolwich Massif and that wasn't he yeah and um and yeah and you've got these 400 fucking lunatics from South London all like fucking like that that was just like fucking hell and um, he was he was as big time as you could get like that is his when you see these like um videos or these Danny Dyer-esque like Cockney films and stuff he was in real life as close to that as you would ever. I've never met anybody. I know all the naughty boys around here and stuff and that, but that was proper. Like when it came out that with about the the robbery, nobody was like, "I'm shocked, I'm shocked, how I can't believe." Yeah, everyone <laughs> in the okay. People were messaging me like, "Mate, have you heard about this cage fighter?" I was like, "Lee," and they're like, "Yeah, I'm like, yeah." I'm like just yeah. don't. Fuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just super. I tell you what, I did want to look at was um, you said about Zikic a few times and stuff. This is stuff in Italy. So yeah. I um years ago I saw this on like World of Sport or something like yeah. crazy. I mean, I was like, I am going to that at some point. And then I heard you've got to be Italian. There's no way that you can get in it unless you're from Italy or something. And all these rumors and also. They're all big old lumps as well. But there was always part of me that thought, yeah, I'd like to have a go at that. But then you are like a super fan and you've obviously been. Yeah, so obviously, again, so I mentioned I mentioned Zikic a few times. So I first met Zikic in um, in Tokai Gym in London, in, in, in London Bridge. So this was after you, this was, like I say, so we're talking, yeah, 2002, yeah, 2002 maybe. Yeah, 2002, 2003. And I used to do BJJ and he was doing the wrestling class afterwards. And now obviously, so James Zikic, he was, you know, at that at that UFC 38, obviously Ian Freeman won, Mark Weir won. Yeah. And James Zikic won. Yeah. And they all got to fight again in the UFC. Yeah. And so Zikic then went and fought, I think it was Philip Miller, um, and he went, I think he, he lost the decision and that was, that was it. But, you know, um, so, you know, Zikic again was like, you know, hero worship, larger than life kind of thing. And then I emceed him when he fought uh, Jeremy Horn mm-hmm. at uh, Extreme Brawl. And so, you know, it's gone from being hero worship to being some guy I'm emceeing and, you know, sort of kind of got to know him. And then, you know, we were, we were friendly. Uh, but we're not mates. It's not like we'd ever been and hung around with each other or anything like that. We you have... become you become peers. Although although yeah. you're not a fighter, you I would say you were. Uh, if we were on, if I was fighting on a show with you, you're one of my peers. Although you're not a fighter, I'd say you're a peer. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, no, no, of course. And and it's you know, look, 
look, you and I, I would consider you a friend. Yeah. But we've never hung around outside of an MMA show before. You yeah. Know what I mean? Like, you know, I've got friends who I only see at MMA shows. Or yeah, events, of course. You know? And he was one of those, you know, he was a mate of mine, but I would only ever see him at events and whatever. And, um, and you know, I mean, if you actually look back, you know, uh, you know, Zekic's record. So Jim Zekic was the first UK fighter to ever go to America and fight. And he fought on uh, the, the Rumble on the Rock or something like that. It was in Hawaii. And he yeah. fought an MMA fight in Hawaii and won. And this was like 99 or something like that. I mean, it was... You know, it was long before I was involved. And um, and then, yeah, you know, and he's, he's... And so he... Look, this isn't I'm, this isn't a derogatory term, but if I was to use the words and say James is a bit of a strange character, yeah? Yeah. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. He reminds me a bit of Keith Jardine in the... Yeah. Like, that they're, they're very similar. Thing. Like a lovely guy when you sit and spend time with him, but yeah. you also never know where the conversation's going to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, some people may know or may not, he's he's uh, he's quite religious and, uh, you know, is, is, is very, has very strong Christian beliefs. And um, he is um, very, very interested in martial arts as a discipline in, in every form. So he is, he has a, an extensive amateur boxing record, has a, an undefeated professional boxing record, and has fought MMA and won world titles against some of the hardest motherfuckers that walk this planet. Yeah. So fought Jeremy Horn to a draw, yeah? Fought, Who's got over 200 MMA yeah? guys? Fought Fabricio Verdum to a draw. Yeah, beat Cyborg for the fucking cage rage title. Fought Vitor Belfort. Yeah, I mean, like the fucking list goes on. If you've never heard of James Zekic, you cannot. Like, so someone like there was a thing that um, a British MMA Instagram page was going, who was instrumental in building UK MMA? And all these people are going, Darren Till. I'm like, I was like, are you fucking dizzy, bro? Yeah. Like, you know, like, seriously, like, you know, no disrespect to Darren Till. I'm a big Darren Till fan, and he's a fucking phenomenal fighter. But let's have it right. He's been doing this for five minutes compared yeah. to someone like which, James. Which Kidd. he would admit himself as well. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, Darren Till was fucking still getting his natty changed when James Zekic was winning fights. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, um, and yeah, just, I mean, it shocks me how they don't know. But, um, so... James were, went to live in Brazil for a while and obviously studied jiu-jitsu and what have you. And he made it his business to go and learn different disciplines of martial arts in various different countries throughout the world. And if there was a, a type of fighting that he had never done before, he would go out of his way to go and try it. So on that, he has also done that fucking night fighting where you put the suit of armor on yeah, yeah. and twat each other with swords and that. He's done, you know that, um, you know that there's that kind of wrestling in South America, in like Peru or something, where they wear the little pink shorts and the funny yeah. hat and that. Yeah, he's done that. Yeah. He's done fucking, you name it, he's done everything. I think he's, I think it's common knowledge. I think he's put the videos up on Facebook and on fucking thing. 
been to Germany and done those football hooligan fights in the woods. Yeah. yeah. Probably doesn't know one end of a football field from the other and doesn't know anything about football at all, right? <laughs> but basically was like, I want to do this. Found someone that did it, said, I'm going to come and do it, and flew out there. And the next thing, he's in fucking a forest in Germany, 20 geezers one side, 20 geezers the other side, fucking having a proper no-holds-barred tear-up in the forest. And I'm like, you're fucking nuts. So James had fought in Italy and won. Um, there is a guy, there's an MMA, a professional MMA fighter called Capelli. And um, he also happens to fight for the blue team in Calcio Storico. So um, James saw this video. So he'd fought in Italy, he'd won, and he knew the promoters and what have you. And he, he had a few contacts out in Italy. And then he saw this, he saw the video of Calcio Storico. And just so for the for the listeners that have no idea, Google Calcio Storico. Uh, Calcio Storico is the one of the oldest sports in the world. Um, it's there is a version of this sport has been played for over two thousand years. It's been um, in its modern, well, its modern form, the current form, it's been played for 600 years since the 1500s or the 1400s in, in Florence. But the Roman soldiers used to play this game. It was called Haspartum. The, this is where the history comes from. The, the, the original game was called Haspartum, and it was developed for the Roman soldiers to stay fit and active in between battles. Yeah. So it was how the Roman soldiers prepared for battle. Yeah. And um, so the, the the modern game now is played in Florence once a year. And um, there are four teams. There are the reds, the blues, the greens and the whites. So the, 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 uh, the ancient city of Florence, the center of Florence, is divided into four quarters. And each quarter has a big church in the middle of it. And each church has a team that is represented in the game of Calcio Storico. So the, the team that James ended up playing for was the white team, which represents the Santo Spirito district. So in the on the south side of the river in Florence, you've got, um, there's a big church called the Basilica de Santo Spirito. And then there's a big square out the front called the Piazza de Santo Spirito. And everybody that lives in that neighborhood is part of that, like can uh, be part of that team. And so what you said before, yes, now, in order to play a cultural story, you need to be born in Florence or have lived in Florence for a minimum of 10 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But back then, so James has found this video of cultural story. He's uploaded the video to Facebook and he's gone, I, I want to play this. Can anybody help me? And the promoter from Italy, who he'd already fought for, goes, I know someone that does that. I'll send your details over. And so he put it, he put James in contact with this guy. And the guy was then, uh, James was then um, uh, invited over to Florence to take part. And uh, so back, like, like up until a few years ago, each team was allowed what they called two strangers. So a stranger is someone that's not from Florence. So this could be a guy from Rome could be a guy from Verona or it could be a guy from Senegal or England or whatever. Yeah. So each team was allowed two non-Florentines on the team. And so James went out to Florence and he stayed there for six months. And he and, and the team have this building, um, which is a bit grotty. 
It's where they store all the merchandise, like the T-shirts and the baseball caps and that. And um, and but there's, a, there's on the first floor, there's a couple of beds and there's a bathroom and a shower and what have you. And um, so they went, right, you know, you can live there. And um, and the one of the and so a lot of the guys that play on the team, they've all got like bars and restaurants in the neighborhood. And one of the restaurants is my favorite restaurant called Raddy. It's owned by a guy called Fabrizio. And they basically went, right, you can eat your meals there. We'll pay for all your food. So you can live in this building. We'll pay for your food and you can come and train with us. And that was it. So he didn't get paid or anything like that. And he was there for six months and he obviously got himself involved in the team and started playing and became a fucking rock star in Florence. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no other way to describe it. like an absolute i mean we're talking within the neighborhood right you know outside of the neighborhood nobody's ever heard of him but yeah in this neighborhood in florence he is a fucking legend yeah <laughs> unbelievable so obviously everyone that plays for the team is born or lives in the neighborhood right <laughs> so they all do it for pride there, you know, it's the pride of the neighborhood. It's the ancient pride for the church that they go to and the and the people of their neighborhood and whatever. So they all know why they do it. Yeah. Then James just turns up and fucking comes and does it. And they're all a bit like, well, what the fuck are you doing this for me? <laughs> and he's just like, well, because I fucking like fucking fighting. And um, and so yeah, lived there for six months, got on the team, played the first year. And obviously he had already beaten Capelli in an MMA fight. Yeah. And Capelli was the big guy on the blue team. So James has now joined the white team and the whites and the blues fucking hate each other. And that's like the big rivalry. And so when the first year when James started playing, the blues fucking had it out for him. And obviously, you know, there are, it's like, you know, there are certain rules that you have to abide by. Um, you know, there you can have, it's, it's basically, it's a, you know, again, for the people that have not seen it, it's a cross between like rugby and bare knuckle boxing. That's the best way to describe it. It's a ball game, but you're allowed to punch each other in the face. Yeah. So under what circumstance can you punch each other in the face? Okay. So, if you want to fight someone, you can fight someone, right? Yeah. And um, it's got to be a, there. I mean, there's a, it's a bit of a grey area, but the, the, the you know the the rules are as enforced as best they can. So it's got to be a one-on-one -on -one situation, right? Yeah. And if you want to fight someone, you, you've essentially got to look them in the eye first, right? Yeah. You know, so you're on one team, I'm on the other team, and it's very much like, if you can imagine, like, a cross between sort of rugby, American football, or a football formation, there's 27 guys on a team, right? So that you've got, you've got your fighters in the front row, you've got your goalkeepers at the back row, and then you've got your midfielders, who generally tend to score a lot of the goals. So the guys in the front row will fight each other, and obviously the, the, the tactic is that if, if, if you fight a guy and you knock him out, he's out the game, right? Yeah. No substitutions, no replacements, none. Everyone starts with 27 guys. And if you get knocked out, you're out. Yeah. yeah. If, I knock, if I knock someone out, they're now 27 and we're, they're now 26 and we're 27. Yeah. So they're at a disadvantage. And that's when, so what will happen is, is they'll, they'll, they'll throw the, like there's a throw in to start the game. Whoever gets the ball, the ball will generally go to the back and just hang around there while the guys at the front start punching fuck out of each other, 
right? <laughs> so, you know, they say there's 10 guys in a line at the front. It'll be like, like there'll be 10 guys that side, 10 guys this side. And when the whistle glow, goes, you look each other in the eye, you nod your head, you put your dukes up and you fucking start throwing shots, yeah? So it's got to be one-on-one. There's no, like, there's no ganging up on people and there's no punching people in the back of the head and there's no attacking people on the floor or anything like that. And if you get caught breaking the rules, you can get sent off. And if you get sent off, then you can be banned for one, two or four of the next games. So if you're banned for four games, you can be banned for the next two years. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, uh, there's always people getting sent off, though. They, they do break the rules. And, and then, like, as an example, but if, say, for example, if you're running with a ball, if you've got the ball and you're running down the field and you're running towards me, I can just jump forward and crack you and knock you out. And that's considered a, a, a legal technique, even yeah. though it's not like a, you know, because you've got the ball and you're running towards me, I'm allowed to punch you. Yeah? yeah. So like the fights on the front line have got to be sort of consensual fights. Yeah. yeah. And you know, what happened is, you know, like you and I would have a bit and then I'd step back and then you go and fight him and then I'd go and fight your mate and then we'd swap over. And, and you know, so it's not just like you and you, it's not just you're not just fighting the guy opposite you yeah, yeah, yeah. for the next 50 minutes. You know, you'll fight other people. And you what tactically, you. I guess you yeah. tactically yeah. fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and then so the ball, like I say, the ball goes to the little guys. So you've got your guys on the front line that are generally pretty big and, and, and good fighters. You've got your guys on the, you know, you've got your guys who are the goaltenders, who the goal runs the whole width of the field. So you've got like four guys at the back row trying to defend the goal. And again, they're generally good tacklers um, and they're, they, you know, good, good stoppers. And then you've got your guys in the midfield who can be quite sort of small and wiry. So like the guy that owns the restaurant, Fabrizio, he is like the superstar of the team. And he's near, like his Fabrizio Valero, uh, uh, Valeri, and everyone. His nickname is Super Valero, and there's fucking songs about him and everything. And it's like Super Valero, and like he is very, very quick and very, very good. And he'll get the ball and and he like he'll be through. He scores a lot of goals, very well respected. And um, and yeah, and like was running for mayor of Florence at one point. Like wow. fucking like the like I'm saying, you know, it's the kind of like could you imagine that if the London mayor went bare-knuckle boxing at the weekend. People yeah. would be like, what the fuck, mate? But, yeah. like, such a well-respected ancient tradition that, like I say, the superstar of the team can, like, run for mayor and stuff like that. And, uh, and yeah, so I'd seen it. Again, I'd seen it a lot. And, obviously, I knew James was doing it. And, you know, I'd send James a message every now and again. Oh, that's fucking brilliant. I love it. da 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 da, da. And, um, and then... You know, I'd always wanted to go and see it. But again, this is like back when I was drinking. So, you know, I used to spend all my money on fucking booze, right? Yeah. So the idea of having spare cash available to be able to just drop everything and go to Italy was sort of uh, kind of out, 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 you know, it was out of the realms of possibility for an active alti, right? So then I, st- so I, st- I quit drinking and I was six months sober. So, you know, by the time I was six months sober, I'd sort of kind of rebuilt my life, had a good job and had money in the bank and da 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 and, um, and James was out in Florence. And I just sent him a message and I went, oh, I said, you know, I've always fancied coming to see that. And he went, well, if you want to come, he says, you can come. And he says, I'll obviously, you know, I'll, get, I'll give you free tickets and what have you. And, um, and then I was like, oh, all right. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I sort of kind of started looking into it. I was looking at flights. And then he just sent me a message and he went, look, and he said, he said, this is, he said, I live in this accommodation here. He said, it's pretty fucking grotty, but it's free. He says, yeah. if you want, 
you can come and stay with me. And I was like, you know, this is a guy who I don't know that well. You know, we know each other through the MMA scene. Yeah. Is, you know, is now offering to fucking for me and him to, 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 to you know, to, 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 to pal up for, a, you know, in the same accommodation for a bit. And I was just like, yeah, fuck it. Yeah. So, yeah. so I booked my flight. And, um, and so, and I turned up and, and, and um, it was just from, from the moment I arrived, it was the fucking most amazing fucking experience of my life. And obviously, because he, like by, by this time, he'd been playing four or five years now. So yeah. he was well respected. Everyone knew him and he was a superstar and everything, right? So I've landed in Florence on the Friday and he's met me at the train station. We've gone, we've dropped the gear, we gear off at the accommodation and he's gone, right, we're playing tomorrow. He said, it's, um, we're having the, the team meal tonight. And he goes, let's go down the restaurant and you can meet the team. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. And um, and so I didn't realize, you know, this is like a private thing for the team, right? There's nobody, no other outsiders there, right? Yeah. And obviously James has walked me in and he's like, this is my friend from England. And I may as well have just taken the shine off James and put it onto me. And they just went, come here. And like, I was treated like a yeah. Friend like a long lost brother wow. instantly because James is a superstar and I was the superstar's friend. So yeah. I might as well have been a superstar. You're a yeah. super boy proxy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, for, like I say, me and him didn't really know each other that well for him to do that for me, man, is just, you know, I'll never forget it, man. Never, ever forget it. What an absolute fucking legend. And so I've, I've got to this restaurant and he's gone, oh yeah, Andy's an MMA referee and da 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 And they were just, everyone came up to me and they were like, oh, nice to meet you. And obviously like most of them are just, you know, they, they don't speak any English. So I'm, I don't speak any Italian. So, you know, it's obviously very, you know, hi, hi, you know, like nodding your head and waving and shaking hands and whatever. But there's a few of the guys on the team are, uh, speak fluent English. So, you know, obviously I got, got quite pally with them and and then obviously, so then the next day, um, we got up. Um, uh, so we've gone out that night, had the meal. I've been introduced to the team. And then he said, right. He said, so this is what happens the next day. We go to the training ground in the morning. We prepare in the morning and then we go to the thing. And like, so I was essentially a, a part of the team for that weekend, right? And so we got up in the morning. So a guy called Lorenzo come and picked us up in the morning. And Lorenzo works for Matchroom Boxing in Italy. Right, very, very high level up in the boxing world in Italy. Real nice guy, fluent in English, absolute legend, sound geezer. And so Lorenzo came and picked us up and he's like, Andy, yeah, nice to see you. Yeah, let's come on, come with us. And then we've gone to the training ground in the morning. And then obviously they all put their costumes on and, and they all start working out the tactics for the day and they pick their team for the day. And obviously I'm sitting watching them all warm up and everything and they're all coming over. Hey, Andy, hey. And, um, and, then, um, and then we have it. Then they have another big meal like at the training ground. They put these tables out and all that and they have a big, and they, they you know, they fucking sit me down at the head of the table and they're like, you you come with us. And, and I'm just like, fucking hell, this is brilliant. And I mean, obviously the, the food, man. Oh, the Italian food, man. Oh, like Martha used to make. Oh, um, pasta and bread and sauce. And, oh. 
That's all fun. stuff I stay away from. But oh. yeah, you've just got no. I mean, like honestly, you go to Italy and you eat the food and you just go. We live on shit in England. <laughs> like it's fucking shit. The food here compared to what we made. And um and like and then so and then from the training ground, uh, like this is one of the training grounds. You then go to the actual headquarters of the team, which is in a different area of Florence. Um, and this is where like they practice their practice field is, and where the changing rooms are, and they, that's when so they all start getting like worked up by the physio and that, and you know they're all getting strapped up, and then they all get dressed. And it's then a, a proper boss. proper big sport and physios and everything. It's yeah, proper, yeah, like, yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's all volunteers. There's no money yeah. in it. It's all volunteers, and um, so everyone is on it the, televised or anything over there? Yeah, it is televised on televised in Florence. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, and so they all get ready and then a bus comes to pick them up and then we all get on the bus. And again, I'm the only person on the bus that's not an actual member of the team. <laughs> I'm like fucking sitting there like this going. <laughs> and they're just like, Andy, like, like again, long lost brother, mate. And, yeah. um, and then we, you're driving in. So the, the training ground is like south of Florence. It's about three, maybe two, three miles yeah, maybe three miles out of the city centre. Not that far, but far enough where, you know, it's just out, it's just a neighbourhood. It's in a place called Galuzzo, which is south of south of Florence. And then and then you drive into Florence. And and um and then as you come into the neighborhood, there is three hundred people stood at the side of the road with banners, like letting flares off, and the bus stops. On, in the middle, it just stops in the middle of the road and they all surround the bus and start banging on the bus windows wow. and everyone's like, hey, and they're all like singing songs and letting flares off and da 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 oh, And I'm man. like, what the fuck's going on here? And then obviously they're all the, like the local hardcore supporters and then obviously then they, they step back off the road and, and the bus current continues. So the bus then pulls up in a, in a square called the Santa Maria Novella. So Santa Maria Novella is where the red team, that's their headquarters, and there's a big church there. And so the bus pulls up, and there is 500 people in the square in traditional costumes, right? So uh, you've got, obviously, you've got the two teams that are playing, and you've got representatives of the other two teams, like their B teams and their juniors. They And then... And you've got all these people in traditional costumes and you've got guys with flags and guys with rifles and guys with crossbows and, you, you know, they represent like, you know, and they're, like I say, all these brightly coloured costumes. And then you pull up at the square and you hang around in the square for a bit and then the parade starts. And then the parade goes from Santa Maria Novella through the city of Florence and, and then arrives at where they play the game, which is uh, Piazza Santa Croce, which is... So it's about a probably a mile walk, maybe a mile and a half. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it's fucking boiling hot. Yeah. And I mean, it, you know, and it's, and so, so that all of the people in the, in the costumes, the flags, the guns and all of that, they all go first. There's a big cow, which is the prize. So the prize is a cow, right? <laughs> obviously it used to be, it used to be like, obviously it's, it's symbolic now, but it used to be, they used to win a cow because everyone was fucking starving to death. Starving, yeah. Hundreds. <laughs> And so they've got this 
big cow where they paint the horns gold in that. So there's a guy with a cow like 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 leading the cow through the through the through the city in that. And um, and so 500 people go in this parade all the way through the city, and it's just the most spectacular and amazing thing that you've ever seen. Um, and then you know, so the team goes first, and then all of the supporters. You can join the parade as a supporter, and you stand behind your team. And then, so then you follow the parade through the city, and all the way along the parade ground, the streets are lined with thousands and thousands of people. And like, you get to certain points in the parade, and there's like people with flares and and fireworks and all that. And they all like, then all of a sudden, the parade will stop for a minute, and everyone will let the fireworks off and the flares off, and like, and you're all singing songs, and it's like, hey, I mean, just fuck, you're just like, this is fucking the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Um, How long's this going on for at this point? How long have you been? So we got so Lorenzo picked us up at 10 a.m. Right? Yeah. 10 a.m. We went to the training ground. We messed around there for a couple hours, had lunch, went to the thing. Then we are you arrive at the square at about 3 p.m. The parade starts at about 4 p.m. Yeah. And then the parade lasts about an hour through the city till about 5 p.m. And then they get to the ground and then, so you get to Santa Croce and obviously they built a stadium. It's like built out of scaffolding. I mean, it's <laughs> fucking a bit dodge, right? So the, the pitch is sand and it's uh, 80 metres by 40 metres or something like that, around that, yeah? And it's a rectangle, a bit like, it's a bit the, about the size of a football pitch, laid with sand. There's like a big padded padded wall around it. And then you've got these these seats that have been built out of scaffolding. And then obviously we go and take our seats and then the teams and like all of the people from the parade will then parade onto the pitch and parade around the pitch like that. And then basically it gets to the stage where the entire pitch is just covered in people. And you've got the guys doing flag displays, throwing flags up in the air and, and, and all of this. And then, you know, and then the guy comes out and like, like their MC, they've got an MC yeah. dude. And he comes out and he's like, and he's like, Viva Francia! And like, like obviously all of this stuff in Italian. I don't know what the fuck he's saying. And, <laughs> and, and, um, and then there's a bit where they all, they all, they all like pay homage, I suppose, to whoever they do. So then there's like, they, they start beating the drum and they go, and all of the players like, like stick their hand behind the back and like stick their head down. And like, you know, like imagine like if you start, like, like as you would start a running race like that. Yeah. And they all stand there like that, and then they beat the drum, and that's like you know to signify that the game's about to start. So then, then the then then basically then the whistle goes, and everyone gets off the field. And so by the time they've done this parade, it's about six, about half five, six o'clock. Yeah. And I mean, it's still you know there was one day when we were walking through the streets and it was forty degrees. Yeah. And wow. so. They've, they've, they've paraded through the streets. So they started at 10 in the morning. They've got there at 3 in the afternoon. They've paraded through. Like They started parading at 4 till about 5, then paraded around the pitch till about half 5, 6, and then they've got to fucking have a 50-minute punch-up. Yeah? Wow. And then, so then, the, then, then the, 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 like, so the game starts about half 5, and, like I say, 27 guys a team, and you've got four referees, five referees, and a load of medics fucking around the side. And um, and yeah, and then the game starts. It's 50 minutes long, no breaks, no substitutions. 
And the only thing is, is that if one team scores a goal, they swap ends. Yeah. And so the, the goal runs the entire width of the field and it's a one metre high. So it's off the ground and it's a, a one metre high goal. And if you get the ball into the goal, you get one point. But if you miss and the ball goes over the top, the other team get half a point. So you've got to be, you can't just willy-nilly fucking throw the ball, yeah? yeah, yeah. You've got to be a little bit. And so, but you can get the ball in the goal any way you want. Kick it, throw it, headbutt it. You can do it from in front of the goal. You can do it from the other end of the field, you know, whatever. It's like, as long as the ball gets in the net, you get a point, yeah? If it goes over the top, the other team get half a point. And so, you know, the first 20 minutes is a lot of fighting, right? Yeah. Like, Ball, to throw the ball in, to throw the ball in, whichever team gets it, like takes the ball to the back of the field. Their guys just hang around the back of the field with the ball, and the guys in the front row start fighting. And then eventually, after you know 10, 20 minutes, a few guys will get knocked out. A few, and what'll happen is there'll be you know the, the 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 defenses will start to be weakened, and then that's when the guys start trying to break through the defenses and and trying to score the goals and that. And um, and yeah, I mean, it's just it's you know when you the first time you watch it, you don't know what to watch. You're like, do I look at the ball? Do I look at the fights? And like, you know, it's very very confusing. But like after, it's like anything. You know, once you've seen it, once you get used to it, you sort of, you can sort of pick and choose the best bits to look at. And and obviously, you know, James is there, so I'm trying to concentrate on what James is doing. Yeah. But basically, what will happen is is say for example, you're fighting someone and there's a clinch and you hit the ground. Once you hit the ground. That's basically you two are out the game until there's a goal, right? Okay. So once once it hits the ground, if like say for example, if if, if if you know you take me down and I'm on my back and you're inside control, yeah. we basically just sit there like for the next until someone scores a goal, right? <laughs> so like there's no there's no punching on the like there's no striking or anything on the floor, no submissions. Once it hits the deck and you've had a little bit of a wrestle then essentially you go, all right, so we're just going to fucking sit here for a bit. And you go, okay. And then, so you'll just sit there. And then when someone scores, you're back to your feet and you'll carry on. Yeah. It's basically what football should be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, and yeah. And, um, and so the first, so that first year that I went, I only went for the semi-final. So the, the final, so there's four, like I said, there's four teams. So there's two semi-finals and then a final, right? So there's three, three games per year. And um, the set, the final is on the 24th of June every year. Yeah. So the 24th of June is San Giovanni, which is John the Baptist. Yeah, John the Baptist Day. John the Baptist is the patron saint of Florence. And um, and so the, 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 the national day of Florence is the 24th of June. And that's the day of the final. And so the, the semis will be two weekends before that. It's just so sit with it. So as an example, so just let's if we have a look this year. So um, so this year, the 24th of June is actually a Friday. So the semis would be on the 11th and 12th of June. So the previous weekend is the 18th and the 19th. And then the weekend before that would be the 11th and the 12th. So they, they, there has to be more than a one week break between the semis and the final. I guess to allow people to heal and stuff, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so if it was on the 22nd, the semis would still be on the 11th and the 12th. Anyway, up to the 20th. 
and then uh, and yeah, but like I say, there's got to be there's got to be more than a one week break. But so the semis are always on the weekend, like two weekends after before the before yeah. the twenty fourth of June. So not necessarily fourteen days, but two no. weekends. Yeah. yeah, two weekends before. So you, you have a semi on the Saturday and a semi on the Sunday. So um, the first the first year I went, I only went for the semis. And, and and the white team won, and I was like, fuck. And then obviously, but, so then, so after the game, right, so it's, if you're, especially obviously if your team's won, if your team's won, everyone jumps onto the pitch. So the the, 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 the pitch is surrounded by a metal fence, like scaffolding. And obviously everyone just rips open the fence and runs onto the field and then invades the pitch and that, you get your picture taken and whatever. You're all fucking, you're hugging everyone. You're covered in sand. Because everyone's just like all the players have obviously been rolling around in sand yeah, for like yeah. an hour. They're fucking filthy. So you're jumping on people in that, and you obviously become filthy because you're wearing a white shirt as well. And and then they parade all the way back. So they walk out of the ground and then they walk. So the ground is very close to the river. And so the white team, they're they're the south of the river, and this is the north of the river. So the team will then walk down the side of the river. Till they get to the Ponte Vecchio, which is that bridge with all the shops on, the very yeah. famous bridge and thingy. And then they walk across the Ponte Vecchio, and that takes you from the north side of the river into the south side. And then once you cross into the south side, you're then back at, in home territory. And then they parade back to the square. And I mean, like you're walking down these little Italian streets, and these old women waving white flags out the window, and that <laughs> like they're all going bellissima, bellissima, and you know. And then, and then you get back to the square and everyone's having a drink and, you know, they're all spraying champagne everywhere and, you know, there's all singing songs in front of the church. I mean, just fucking unbelievable. And then, obviously, when I was, when James was there and they were like, right, Andy, come on with us. And then, so they then go back to the um, the training ground and they all get changed and showered and then we go, then they will, then there's always a big meal afterwards. And then again, so you then get invited to go down with the team to the the restaurant that's been chosen for the after meal, and I mean you're talking a fucking ten courser, you know, and um, and obviously at the game there, you know, I'm the only person sat there that isn't part of the team or the backroom squad, you know. Obviously you've got your coaches and your physios, yeah, and, you know, whatever. So you know, there's 27 guys on the team, you know, the squad's probably 40 guys, 50 guys, and then the backroom team's probably 20, 25 guys. About 70, 65, 75 guys. Wow. And then me. Yeah. But like, again, they're like, Andy, come now. And then they, and they just start bringing out food, mate. And I mean, it's just like, and you'd be, oh. so you'd be sat there for four hours eating, you know, and obviously, oh. so they, they bring out like, so a tray of food will arrive, you know, and you just take a small piece. You know, whether it's pasta or whether it's a bit of meat, you know, they do veal and beef and chicken and uh, oh, tripe. I tried tripe, man. You ever had tripe? No, I've not had it. People with, yeah. with that food thing that I did at Christmas, people said about me doing tripe. I was like, never done it, no. Yeah, it's not very nice. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure, like, it's, I'm sure it's an acquired taste. But yeah, yeah. The fucking, like the plate of tripe was put in front of me. And they're like, and obviously I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh fucking hell. Um but yeah, I mean like and then and then you know the desserts and everything like that and and um oh just I mean you know and then so by the time it's you know you, you're looking it's like midnight um uh, you know one o'clock in the morning 
And then, you know, they're all going out on the piss afterwards. And that's when right. I'm a bit like, all right, guys, thanks very much. I'm going to fuck off back. And, you know, so you've been on your feet since it, since 10 o'clock in the morning. It's now one o'clock in the morning. You know, you've been, and you're, you're covered in sand. You're knackered. You're sunburned. You know, it's fucking oh. just, you know, you've been, a, but just the most amazing fucking time. And then, um, and then, yeah, so then that was, the, so the first year I was only for the semi and they won. And then obviously I was back in England and they won the final and I was speaking with James and I just went, listen, I'm coming for everything next year. So then the following year I've gone back and I like, I took, I took three weeks off work. And, um, and so I, I got there for the semis, went to both semis. Obviously the white team won the semi and, um, and then I had like, obviously I was at the accommodation with James and then I like, so I packed a rucksack out of my bag and then I just fucked off and I went from Rome, I went from Florence down to Rome and then from Rome to Sicily and I did like a few, like four days in Sicily and then I came back to Rome and did a few more days in Rome. Then I went out to Rimini and did a couple of days in Rimini and then I came back and then did then back for the final in that. You didn't. You didn't go to the other semis then, like for the other teams. And stuff. Yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the the only so at the other semis. So there's the reds, the blues, the greens, and the whites. Like I said, the whites is is my team, and the blues is the 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 fucking one we don't like. Yeah. So, so the reds and the greens, you know, I'm like I'm a bit ambivalent towards. So if the reds are playing the blues, I'll get a ticket for the red end. Yeah, so it's yeah. like it's like football that the, the, they are segregated. You got one thing like so. I would never, I would never go and watch a game and put a blue shirt on and stand in the blue end. I would always go and like put a red or a green shirt on and stand in the opposite end to the blues. Of course, yeah, because yeah. you're a white. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's like if like if you want like and it's like I naturally just as our blue is actually my favorite color. <laughs> like for clothes buys, so like I like most of my shirts are blue and most of my jumpers are blue. Or, you know yeah. they're dark and sedate colours. I'm not that. You know I'm not like a. I don't go around wearing oranges and shit like that. I'm not weird <laughs> like that. But, um, and so um, <laughs> I love the way you had to explain that you're not a guy who wears orange. I don't. I, I don't go around wearing oranges. I just got to let you know. I, and um, so anyway, so a lot of my shirt. But what I'm saying is, is before you, before you leave. You've got to see, you've got to, like, when I'm packing my bag to go, I've got to make sure that I'm not packing my blue clothes. Because I can't walk around the white neighbourhood wearing a blue shirt. You can't do it. I mean, I'm sure you can. I'm sure it's probably mostly up here for me. But, like, there's no way that I would walk out of my, walk out of my hotel, like, wearing a blue shirt in fucking, in, in like, in, in game week. Just fucking yeah. no way, mate. Yeah, you got, like, so the, the colours for the team, that it's, it, it, it's Bianca. Is white is the is the is the team, but the the, the 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 clothes that they wear, the traditional costumes, is white and purple. So I've, I've got a, I bought a few purple polo shirts, just cheap ones, and I bought a pair of purple fucking uh, Adidas gazelles. So when I'm there, I don't want to wear white all the time because that's a bit fucking weird as well. But like, so I, like I wear a lot of purples and, and and whites and that when I'm there. Yeah. And then obviously you know, like you know you you know. You know, if you, if you if you get on the train and go like so, this like like last year, me and my mate Joe, who comes with me now, we went down to um, we went down to um, uh, Naples for a week. Yeah. And um, so obviously, you know, when you're down in Naples, you can wear whatever the fuck you want. Um, but yeah, fucking hell, mate, Naples, 
Jesus Christ. Now, that is a weird fucking place. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. So, obviously, Florence is very chilled and very relaxed, and it's, you know, all of this ancient culture and history and, you know, da-da-da-da-da, and, you know, it's just, you know, it's pretty chill. And then we, we got the train down to Naples, and we've come out the station, and we've gotten a taxi outside of the station to get a taxi to the apartment that we'd rented. So we'd rented this apartment in the Spanish Quarter, which is about, I don't know, two miles from the station. And I swear to fucking God, you have never been in a more scary two-mile fucking wacky races than you're like, every, more pens flying everywhere, cars <laughs> pulling in front of you. Nah, nah, nah. Like, you know what you imagine Italians drive like? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's Naples. Like, they don't <laughs> drive like that in Florence. But they fucking drive. They don't drive like that in Rome. But they fucking drive like that in Naples, mate. It is like that two mile to get from the station to the apartment. Me and Joe were in the taxi going, "What the fuck, mate?" <laughs> like some real scary fucking shit, mate. Honestly, they're crazy, absolutely crazy. And then that's, um, that's like India. India's the only place I've ever been where I thought I don't want to drive. I don't want. Like, yeah. I don't know what's going on here. There's five lanes of traffic in a three lane highway. I don't want to drive here. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's like that. Was, like, I actually thought I was like, no, I mean, like, I because I passed my driving test quite late. And the first, like, one of the first things I did when I passed my driving test was drive into central London. I was yeah. like, we're gonna fucking do it, let's fucking, you know, start as you mean to go on. So, yeah, yeah. and I had a, had a boxing show in Camden, yeah. So, I fucking got my car and I drove into central London, through central London, and up to, up to Camden. And I was like, well, that's the fucking worst thing I'm ever gonna come across in me driving, yeah. isn't it? I, and then I got into Naples. I was like, I ain't doing this. Nah. No. <laughs> yeah, some proper fucking lunacy on the roads. And then, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some, like, Naples is very historic. You know, it's like all of it, you know, ancient. And you've got Pompeii there. Now, I mean, look, we, me and my mate, we went, and, we went to Pompeii, right? Yeah. And if you've seen one old stone building. You've seen them all. You've seen them all, right? Yeah. So, you know, we spent, it was like an hour on the train to get there, and then we spent hours walking around, and then an hour on the train to get back, and I was like, I could have totally done without that, you know yeah. what I mean? But yeah. we, um, we, did a, we did a tour of the, in, of the, of like the old city, so my mate Joe, he does Italian lessons, and through his Italian teacher, he, he knew this guy who like gives guided tours around, around the city, and so we paid this guy, it was only like 20 bucks each or something, it wasn't like a wasn't it? And, 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 and he, so we met him and then he walked us through like the ancient center of Naples and was obviously, you know, pointing out churches here and food places here and, and all of that. Real, 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 real good. And I mean, some of the food. So Naples is like the where pizza was invented. Yeah. Uh, and then we asked the, the guide, we said, right, where is the best pizza in Naples? And he said that there's this restaurant on the front, on the seafront in Naples, is, is, is uh, you know, the, the locals consider this place to sell the best pizza in Naples. So it's the best pizza in the place that invented pizza. Yeah. Essentially, the best pizza on the face of the fucking planet. And you're, you're going there. You're, rather than see an old building, you'll go there. That's, yeah, that's yeah, your yeah. thing. Yeah, that's your gig. 
So that's what we did the next day. We walked out of our apartment, we walked down to the front and then we turned right and then we walked all the way along and we came we came across the Excelsior Hotel, which is where they filmed The Sopranos when The Sopranos was in Italy. And like we were just walking along and my mate went, that's the fucking hotel out of The Sopranos. I was like, fucking hell, look at that. And, um, and so we got our picture and then we walked, we carried on, we walked all the way and we found this restaurant. And I mean, we were fucking knackered by the time we got there. And then the, I was like, right, I'll have this. And he, I tell you what, he's brought the pizza out. It was like, you know, the, every pizza is good in Naples. But this yeah. one was just that there was like, you know, every pizza was a nine out of 10. They, or every pizza was a 10 out of 10. This one was an 11. There was just yeah. something about it. I don't know what it was. It was the it was the best fucking pizza I've ever eaten in my life. And um, yeah, so do, done stuff like that. Um, so I really want... I've been following a lot of these pages on Instagram and it's all like these little Italian little seaside villages where, where they, and, um, and I watched this, um, there's, you know, Joe Rogan's favorite restaurant is in LA and it's a pasta place. Yes. Well, the guy that owns that restaurant. Felix, is it called Felix? Felix? Yeah. yeah. Felix. So, um, the guy that owns that restaurant did a TV show, um, about pasta. So his his speciality is fresh pasta, yeah. And what he did is he, he he did some historical research about these ancient types of pasta, and he found these types of pasta that are only made in these very specific places in Italy. And um, and so he went there, and every place he went, he found like the old granny that's been making the pasta for fucking sixty years and got this old granny to teach him how to make the pasta. And um, I mean, you're just, you're watching this TV show just going, that's the fucking greatest thing I've ever seen. I mean, like, unbelievable. And there's this, this is bit, right, where they, they go, oh, mate, like you fucking, you know, I'm not, I'm not really a crier, but. <laughs> so he goes to this fucking, he goes to this place in Italy, this village, right? And it's like up a mountain somewhere near the coast in the north of Italy. And they make this special type of pasta, which is like, um, so they make the dough and then they get like uh, like a bit like knotty where you get like the little, like they, they do it with the hand. But this woman, she's got this, this, this there's no other way to describe it. it. I don't know. It's like a, you know, like imagine a ladder where the rungs of the ladder are all next to each other instead of spaced apart, right? right? So it's like a like a rack, but not a ladder, like a little thing like this, right? So it's imagine like two sticks, and then in between the sticks have got these like, like thick bits of grass or, you know, thin bits of wood, like tiny, tiny, t- like cocktail sticks. Imagine like two two racks with cocktail sticks in between, and they're, they're, they're like, so it's like a board, like a washboard, but it's yep. like a little thing about this big. It's like, you know, it's like eight inches long and two inches wide. And what they do is the old granny, she gets the fucking board and she gets the little lump of dough and she puts the lump, she puts it on the on the thing and she rolls it down. And it and it makes like a shell form with like these ridges on the outside. Yeah. And this is the t- and so they go and she just and she so she sits there. Each like, one individually. Each one handmade individually like yeah. this, right? And um and, and he said to her and he said he said he said oh he said that's a, a great tool to make the pasta he said uh, he said where can I buy one and she goes well he goes where did you get it and she goes oh I got it off my granny and he goes all right where did she get it and she goes well she got it off her granny 
And he goes, where did she get it? And she goes, well, she got it off her granny. And he's like, how old is that thing? And she's uh, 200 years old. And he's what? like, and this thing was 200 years old. And she'd been using it every single day of her life to make pasta, right? And um, and he's like, and he, she's like, he's like, can I buy one? She's like, well, I don't think so, like whatever. And um, and then so at the end, they're all sitting down to eat the pasta, and they're all like, and he's like, oh, this is brilliant, like that. And the old granny comes up and gives him the fucking board. No. And like, and she goes, you can take this back to America. And the bloke starts fucking pissing, and I like, you're watching the show going, fucking hell, like, like unbelievable, mate. Like, oh man, and just the the fucking food that they're making, and just. Oh. And all these little, and like, I swear to God, like, if I won the lottery, right? If I won the lottery, I would start at the north, like, where Switzerland is, and yeah. I would just walk, I would just like, I would stop in every village on the yeah. coast, all the way down. Like, I, so people, you, like, I'm a foodie, like, you're a foodie, I'm a foodie, and, uh, uh, people talk about things like, oh, pastas, pastas, pasta, you've had one lasagna, you've had a more, and I'm like, no, these people in Italy. This, I mean, I, like, so I, I've been to, uh, I went to Sorrento for a wedding, so went to Capri and went to all different, and I had seafood on Capri, I had like a seafood platter thing. It's not, it wasn't like longustines there are not like longustines two miles in. I was like, what, how, what's happened from that two mile journey? Just the way that and the pa the passion is put into that Italian food. Yeah. It's like it's like having a, a paella in the center of Bristol and thinking it's going to be no different to having it on the coast of Spain. Like it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. it's got of course it's going to be different and especially with pasta because pasta is obviously quite a bland food in the UK. You add sauce to it and you add this to it, you add that to it, and it's all out of a jar and it's this. But it's like. The pasta's a treasured thing in Italy, right? The making of the pasta's the treasured thing, and then the sauce is an accompaniment with that. Well, I mean, so this is so Fabrizio, the guy that uh, the superstar on the on the on the Calcio Storico team, he owns this restaurant called Radi, and it's up this like back street in Flo in in the neighbourhood in Florence. And like as a tourist, if you didn't know where it was or you did, nobody had told you about it, you would never fucking find it. You would never come across it. And it's you know when you go in there. You know, it's essentially, you know, 99% of the people that ever go in there are local Italians. Yeah. And um, and this was the very first time I ever had um, spaghetti aglioolio peperoncino, which is basically, it's the most basic pasta dish you can get. So it's spaghetti, olive oil, garlic, and a few chili flakes. That's it, right? And... Um, and so basically what they do is they boil the pasta, they cook the pasta, they then get a pan, like a frying pan, and you so you put the olive oil in the frying pan, you chop the garlic, put that in, and a few chilli flakes, put that in, and then uh, once the garlic's cooked, you then throw your pasta in the pan, toss the pasta in the oil, and then pour it into a bowl, and you serve it, like that. That's and, it. Um, and you, you get your fork, and you put it in your mouth, and you just go, that's fucking amazing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, and now I cook it all the time at home because it's like, it's like I say, there's like, it's it's good for like, you know, as 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 far as a pasta dish goes, it's probably the most healthy one you can do, and it's it like, but, but you know, it's worth what you got to do is you, it's about it's all about it's about the pasta and the oil, you know, if you go down to Tesco's and you buy Tesco's spaghetti and you buy Tesco's own brand olive oil, 
that yeah. food will taste like Tesco's fucking shit food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, so we've got um the, I mean I'm sure there's one in every t- city and whatever, but there's a there's an Italian deli in Reading that brings in that 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 La Molassina pasta, which is imported from Italy, and it's like yeah. the, the high, it's like you know, a, like so a packet of pasta in Tesco's is like what 60p? Yeah. So a packet of this pasta is three pounds, yeah, for 500 grams. So it's, you know, it's like, so 60p for a a kilo of shit pasta or three quid for 500 grams of this imported Italian's pasta. Is this the stuff, did you post a picture of it the other day? Just something if you know, you know or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you buy the, the good quality pasta and then you buy the olive oil from the Italian deli. And, you know, like a litre of olive oil in the Italian deli is like eight quid. Right. Yeah. You know, a litre of olive oil in Tesco is like £2.50. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you're talking eight. So you buy the you buy the olive oil from Italy, eight quid. You buy the pasta, three quid. And uh, and then obviously, you know, your garlic and your chilli flakes, you know, you get them anywhere. But, and then so you, but what I'm saying is, is that extra few quid that you spend on the quality ingredients when you make the fucking food. Changes the dish. Just absolutely unbelievable. So yeah, so but like that stuff I posted up. So that was ziti. So you know this is actually from the Sopranos. So in the Sopranos, they're one of the dishes that they're always talking about is baked ziti. Yeah. And um, and I've always been a big like I've always like I've always like spag ball is like my go-to dish. My kid loves it. I love it. And yeah. you know I've developed my techniques over many 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 years. And I like to think that I, you know my spag ball is up there with. The best of them, yeah. So you just buy Dolmio, yeah? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I um, and so I looked up this baked ziti. Uh, I googled it, and so it's it's the sauce is essentially fairly similar to a spag ball sauce. So the major differences are that um, the instead of just beef, minced beef, you use half beef and half pork. Right, so you get half, like you get 500 grams of minced beef, 500 grams of minced pork, and you whack them in the pan instead of just minced beef. And you also need proper Italian sausage. So again, at the Italian deli, they sell the Italian sausage, like proper Italian sausages. I mean, they're made in London, but they're made by an Italian guy. Yeah, yeah. And um, and uh, and again, you know, you get these five, they're really thick, thick, thick sausages like that. So you brown them off, and then you slice them up into little discs. And then you put them in the sauce as well. And that's where you get a lot of your flavour from. And you use a lot of basil as well. So, you know, it's like I say, you know, onions, garlic, you know, you put your meat in, peppers, uh, you know, and then, you you know, your tomatoes and your herbs and whatever. And so what you would you, you usually do to make a spag ball, you do it with ziti, but you put a lot more basil in, fresh basil. You use the pork and the sausage. And then so, like I say, like, you know, the, the, what a lot of people don't understand and it fucking drives me nuts. I remember someone once, when you talk about Dolmio, someone once said to me, do you want some spag ball? And I was like, oh, I love spag ball. And they, what they've done is they've browned some mince off, yeah. they microwaved a jar of Dolmio, poured it in, stirred it up and put it on the plate. And I went, I, went, I was like, what are, you, what are you doing? They're like, that's spag ball. I went, it's fucking not. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, you've got like, like, you know, the thing is you've got to simmer it for like an hour. You know, yeah. get all yeah. the flavors, you know, and then so you make the sauce like obviously when you're making spag ball, I always like to make sure the sauce is nice and thick. And, I, you know, so you reduce it down, you boil it for ages and you, you reduce yeah. it down. So with the ziti, because you're going to bake it, 
you you leave the sauce a little bit thinner and then what you do is you get you boil your ziti pasta up. So ziti is a shape of pasta. It's a pasta tube, yeah. And so you boil the pasta up, and then you get a tray, like a like. So I just buy these foil trays, but you know, like a bacon tray, like a lasagna dish. And then you layer it up. So you put a layer of pasta, then you put a layer of sauce, and then you get some little bits of mozzarella cheese, and then you put a like a like bits of mozzarella cheese in it. And then a layer of pasta, layer of sauce, bits of cheese, layer, and then as many as you can do. And then, and then on the top, you get grated mozzarella, and you put a layer of grated mozzarella on the top. And you whack that in the oven for like twenty-five minutes, and like obviously all the cheese in the middle goes all sticky and all that. And it's just, I'm telling you, I don't give a fuck, mate. I like, like I, I don't consider myself to be a chef or a cook, right? What I consider myself to be is I can cook certain things real fucking good. Yes. Uh, and I will challenge anybody to present me with a pasta dish that tastes fucking better than my beer tea. Yeah. It's oh. the fucking bollocks, bro. Mate, it's like it sounds like pe- the amount of people who just eat food to because it like t- just to get through, or they chuck something in and like microwave burgers or whatever. It's oh. like, look, I'm like, I, how, like, how the fuck are you even like? So the other day I made a quiche because I haven't been able to taste since um had COVID. But that's been coming back slowly. I've got most of my taste now. And I did a quiche. And I looked at the quiche recipe. And it said like 150 grams of cheese. I was like, I'm going to add 75 grams more to that as well. So I did that. And even then, it came out. I looked at it. I was like, this doesn't look like it's going to be cheese. And I was like, should have gone more cheese. Do you know what I mean? I just just changed a different recipe, different cheese. But I'll eat it. And it was nice. But I want it to be like, I want to... Feel the break in the cheese at the top as I bite through it, and I want, the same with you with the with your pasta dishes. You want it to be, you know, like as you take it off the spoon, the sauce needs to be thick and in your mouth, and mm-hmm. people will just get Domio, stir it around, and uh, the mince like, no. will still it still look like it's strings instead of being mush. Oh. And like people serve that to their children, and I'm <laughs> like, that's a that's tantamount to child abuse. You exactly. fuck. Like, honestly, like, if you're serving that to your kids, man, you don't fuck it. Like, if you, like, don't get me wrong. And, and like, so I, like, I was a fucking, an absolute waste man in the first part of my life, right? So, like, when I, like, I left home at 19, and then I constantly found myself in relationships with girls who would be, like, a substitute mother, right? So I'd fucking get a girlfriend, and if, as, as long as she would cook clean and do me laundry that was fucking you know that was like i'd landed on my feet as i was concerned and then um i split up with my kid's mother and then um and i was so i was living on my own and um and and i, I got to a point in my life where obviously my my ex-mother-in-law was you know, uh, you know, me and her daughter had just split up after a long relationship and what have you. I'm obviously not her favourite person. Yeah. And um, and she's like, you know, my mother fucking said this and my mother fucking said that. And I'm like, and and the and and what I want, what I didn't want to do was I didn't want to be able to give her any ammunition to to be able to fucking mug me off about the way I look after my kid. Yeah. So. You know, I found myself, my kid's two years old. Um, I'm, I'm living on my own. I've never 
fucking cooked properly. I've never cleaned properly. I've never washed, done laundry properly. You know, I've sort of mumbled and stumbled through the, you know, what I would consider to be, the, you know, my adult life up until that point. And I'm now, you know, it's like fucking, I'm now, you know, um, you know, so I was, what, 20, yeah, 20, you know, 20, 29. So I'm like 29, I'm on my own. And, you know, I've got this fucking, you know, this ex-mother-in-law that's just waiting for me to fuck up. Yeah. And yeah. so she go, you're a fucking idiot. And so what I did is I took it upon myself to learn how to do all of these, you know, basic, normal, what I, you know, what I now consider to be basic adult fucking tasks. But, you know, I was a, I was a big fucking kid, wasn't I? And I'd been, like I say, I'd been finding these girls who would act as a substitute mother. And, um, and, and all of a sudden I'm on my own. And, you know, I'm like, how does the washing machine work? You know, you know, how do I fucking cook? You know, how do I fucking clean up? You know, all of this stuff. And so, you know, I, I taught myself how to do it. And, um, and yeah, now I've, you know, I fucking, you, you know, I look at people and I suppose it's a bit hypocritical, but, you know, now I look at people like there's, 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 there's people I know, like friend, like friends of mine or, you know, people who were a friend or ex-friends or whatever, you know, so there's a guy I know split up with his missus and has his kids at the weekend. And like before the kids arrive on a Friday, he pays a cleaning lady to come in and clean the clean the house. Right. Yeah. And then and then all that weekend will just take the kids to various cafes, restaurants and takeaways. And I'm like, that's all well and good if you can afford a cleaner and you can afford restaurant food. I said, but what would happen if all of a sudden tomorrow you woke up fucking skint and you couldn't afford that? I was like, you could not look after your own children. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fucking ridiculous. And, and you certainly can't teach them and install uh, the morals and yeah. the want to not. I mean, there's something that comes with what you did. I mean, I, I've been single for for a long time, so I've had to do those things. But you, something what you did it, and adult, as an adult, you made those changes. The sense of pride that comes along with that. The sense of like, yeah, I can fucking clean a house. Yeah, I can clean the oven. Yeah, I can. My bath gets washed round, and my razor is not sat there, and I got pull it off the back or just covered in muck or whatever but yeah I, I can do these things because i do it with pride now because yeah, yeah, i yeah. have to teach myself to do that but those morals then get passed down to the boy and you know it's like how can you turn around and say to the boy like well hang on take take your plate out and swill it off yeah, and he yeah. goes out there and yesterday's washing up still in the kitchen you can't like well that's i mean you know that's and now i take pride in the fact that you know my kid is able to you know to look after himself so you know, he, you know, so what, you know, I, I'm also a dad handed a roast dinner and we used to fucking, um, you know, from a very, very early age, you know, it was, you know, it's about spending time with your kid. And this isn't just, you know, about, you know, going to the cinema or doing or paying money on, you know, for whatever. So what we would do is we'd get up on a Sunday morning and I'd be like, right, we're going to do a Sunday dinner today. And he'd be like, you know, this is like, you know, 10 years ago, you know, you know, 14 years ago when I first come, when I was, when I was first moved to Redden, you know, so my kid's like four, five years old and we'd get up and I'd be like, right, we're going to do the dinner. And he'd be like, yeah, and he'd get all excited and would go to Tesco's and would go around Tesco's and he would pick the food. And I'd be like, right, I would say, we're going to do a chicken. You go and pick which chicken you want. 
I was like, get a big one, you know, pick the chicken, and then uh, we'd go to the veg thing, and he'd pick all the veg, and we'd pick, and we'd buy everything, and then we'd take it home, and then we'd spend time as father and son in the kitchen, and we'd cook the dinner together. And yeah. then, um, and then it was about, so I'd been back in, like, so me and her had been split up for like four years or whatever. I'd been living in Redden for a couple of years, and he was round his fucking granny's house, and she was doing the dinner. And she was, she turned around to him and she went, she went, okay. She went, she went, Robson. He went, yes, he went. She went, and who makes the best Sunday dinner? Expecting him to say granny does. And he turned yeah. around and he went, me dad. And she was fucking wounded. Yeah. And it had been, and that's worth all the four years of hard work to get to that point. <laughs> Mate, not even about food. It was just like, Boom, what a victory. But like my sister, I was having my sister the other day for a roast, and I was like, there's no Yorkshire pudding. She said, oh, no, I forgot to get them. I was like, what do you mean? She goes, I forgot to get the Yorkshire puddings. I was like, have you got, got flour? Flour? Have you got milk? <laughs> have you got eggs? Yeah, we've got Yorkshire puddings. What are you on about? Like, what? Hey? And she's like, oh, I don't know how to make them. I was like, man, like, what? Like, I mean, I can knock up a Yorkshire pudding. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, 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 yeah. it's crazy into me. But, yeah, you, you I mean... That's the sense of pride. You did it yourself as an older guy. You got it done. And then, boom, you taught the boys something. You know, like, the, the thing is, people can look at what you've been through um, as, as, like, your addiction, the way, also as well, like, you know, I know you as a person. You're not going to use your addiction to make fucking excuses for some of the shit decisions you made as well. Your addiction, some of the shit decisions you made, life choices you made, all that you've been through, and people can look at that and sort of, like, turn their nose up, or people don't, people listening to this might not want to admit that they, they're in or have been in similar situations, but you've acknowledged that, and all of that means that Robson's life now benefits from all the stuff that you can sit down and say look blah 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 and this was because of this and i'm honest and this was shit and this was my fault and what you've given him now is that that balance that you know that life experience that he doesn't have to go out i mean he still might he still might have the issues but he doesn't have to go out and do that because you've had them you've addressed them and you're now the guy you are you know the, the main thing is mate is look you know if and when he ever you know if and when he gets to the point where he's stepping out on his own and he's going to live on his own I know that I have taught him to wash dishes, you know, wash, use the use the washing machine. He can do his own laundry. He can, he can, he can cook, he can clean and he can, you know, after himself, he is, you know, he is now a self-sufficient young man if he needs to be. Yeah. And um, yeah. And that, you know, like I say, you know, I was, you know, I was a little scrot when I was a kid and, and, uh, and, you know, I ended up fucking, you know, leaving home at 19 and it was, you know, it was quite under a cloud at the time. And, and then I'm living on my own in some fucking grotty flat and it was just absolutely manky. And, you know, and obviously I was smoking a lot of fucking weed. So, you know, the laziness that comes along with that and, you know, your dishes are, like you say, dishes are piling up in the fucking sink and dirty clothes are all over the floor and, and that, and just, it, you know, that's like, it's no way to live. You're living like a fucking stick of the dump, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, and then now, you know, my kid, so when he comes over here for the weekend, you know, the last thing he does before he leaves the house is tidy his bedroom. I say, you don't yeah. fucking leave this bedroom in a shit state. I say, you come, I said, when you arrive, this bedroom is tidy. And when you leave, this bedroom is tidy. Yeah, yeah. And whatever happens in the interim period, that's up to you. Yeah. I said, but before you leave this house to go back to your mother's, your bedroom better be in the same fucking state it was when you arrived. 
Yeah. And so, you know, he knows, like I say, he knows and he doesn't fuck about. And like, but like, you know, his mother's like, you know, you, you know, mothers are generally tended to be a bit softer. You know, like when he comes to me, it's like, I'll get up in the morning, I'll be like, right, shall I, your turn. And he just gets up and does it. And then I'll go around his mother and just be like, he hasn't had a shower for three days. And I'm like, well, fucking tell him to. Yeah, that's he's what like, I, yeah. No, it's up to you. I can't make him. I can't make him. You can. Take yeah, you away can. everything that's not involved in a shower. The only thing he's got left to do is shower. Like, mm -hmm. uh, like yeah, you're a parent. But you're my, like, I get it, mate, because... Flick the fuse, turn the electric off in his bedroom. Fucking don't give him any food. And be like, exactly. right, when you're hungry... When you're hungry, you better be fucking clean when you come and ask for some food. Yeah, go and wash your scrot. It's that simple. That's all you have to do. But, I mean, it's just that, mate, they're, they're little bits, like, keeping that... that people won't realise, and uh, people might even think now, like, oh, you're talking shit. Man, they will... That will be reflected in the way he handles finances, the way yeah. he looks for a woman, the way that he conducts himself in employment. Will all be little things of the... You know, if he sees another employee, like, in a place where he's, maybe Tesco's or whatever it is, just something's out of place, he'll be the guy who turns the label to face the right way or picks up the rubbish off the floor. Or whatever it is, he'll have that that little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he just thinks, well, no, we, we do stuff neatly. We do stuff tidy. We do stuff, you know, and even if it's just the fact of, oh, I've only got 30 quid left now in my bank. I'm not going into my overdraft. I'll cook food tonight rather than buy a take. Whatever. There'll just be little bits in life where that's going to stand him in good stead and be a benefit to him. That's it, man. Yeah, man. Listen, we'll, um, two hours, 25 minutes in, we'll wrap this up, but I'm going to go, it's not going to be long before I'll have you back on again, mate, because it's just wicked talking to you. You get what yeah. podcasts are. It's nice to just sit and chew the fat, mate. So thank you very much. Uh, Thank you very much. We, for well, we didn't even fucking talk about COVID really properly once. How's or the, the politics. No I, politics, no COVID, I know. You know, because like the, the thing about it is, is like, well, in fact, we'll leave this for next time. But I will leave. So some people may, like some people obviously, like people on my Facebook will know, right? And so two things. So number one, if any of your listeners or watchers have listened to anything I've said about addiction and have any kind of identification with that whatsoever, the bet and and you and you think that you need help, right? Let me just say, if you think you need help, you need help. Yeah. So two things: Instagram, Andy Andy dot Sledge. Feel free to drop me a message on Instagram and ask me a question. However, the response to that question will be: go to an NA meeting or go to an AA meeting. So go on to Google, type in Alcoholics Anonymous, type in Narcotics Anonymous, whatever your little poison is, and go to a meeting. And uh, and and I guarantee if you're if you're taking drugs or drinking alcohol and as a result of that, your life is shit. Yeah. Go to a meeting. Stop drinking. Stop using. And after 90 days, I guarantee your life will be better. If after 90 days you don't think your life's any better. Well, the good thing is, is your misery is fully refundable and you can have it all back by picking up a drink again. Yeah. So that's that. But like I say, my <laughs> so I am like schrodinger's vaccine yeah <laughs> nobody knows if i've had it or not yeah, yeah, yeah. because yeah. i've been there are certain things about the vaccine i'm quite pro and certain things about the vaccine that i'm quite anti so yeah. if anyone fancies making a choice and deciding have i been vaccinated or not that's a little quiz for our listeners and readers for there next time go. i am yeah. schrodinger's vaccinated person have yeah. i had it or have i not 
The yeah. thing is, so this is the the great thing about you and I, because obviously I'm quite openly. Um, I say so. People think I'm anti-vax, and all you've got to do is read my statuses with, with logic and without confirmation bias to realise I'm pro-vaccine just for certain people, not everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you can read that sensibly. Now, what also people don't realise is, I could be anti-vax, but I still don't think five G is going to kill me. I still don't <laughs> think that. Tom Hanks and all of those guys is all going to come out that they're trying to rape everyone's children. And I like it's they're not the same thing just because I think that. And also people can think people say about Robert Malone and stuff like this. But it was on the on the Joe Rogan. People are always like, oh, he's discredited. I'm like, OK, can you I need to see when you make that claim, you can't just make that claim against yeah, me a, about a career a career uh, scientist. What you have to say is he's discredited. So you must have, in order to use that as your argument, you must have read the discrediting paper for me. You must have then read any quotes of his work or the work that has been deemed discredited. Because if you don't, there's something called context. So if they've discredited a piece of work by Robert Malone, but taken out of context, it's not discredited work by, by Malone, it's a piece of work with a discredited misquote. So I say to people, right, find me any discredited work pre-COVID-19. No one's ever been able to do that yet. I'm like, right. So that should then turn your ears up and say, hang on a minute. That seems weird. Let's look into things. Now, that's how I don't believe everything Robert Malone says. I listen to his podcast and I, I specifically don't believe everything that the other guy, Peter McCullough. Yeah, McCulloch. Or something like Peter that. McCulloch. I really enjoyed his podcast, but part of me was like, I'm not sure I'm fully on board with this guy. He seems a bit of a crank. Malone, not so much, but him. And I'm like, you get it. You might not agree with some stuff that I say, and I might not agree, with you, but you get it. You realise I'm not a fucking David Icke fruitcake who thinks that everyone's lizards just because I don't think nine-year-olds should be having vaccines. Just FYI, Jim Z, it's just David Icke's bodyguard. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway... We'll leave it at that. Okay, mate. Uh, mate, listen, thank you very much. Uh, say hello to Robson for me, mate. Um, we'll do it. And then we'll pack up again real soon. Another month or so, a couple of months, whatever. We'll fucking, we'll do it again, mate. Yeah, I'll just stop this now, mate, and I'll say goodbye to you personally. Thanks again, okay. brother.